This is Audible. Audible Studios presents Tiny Habits, the small changes that change everything. Written by and performed by B.J. Fogg, Ph.D. Tiny Habits, the small changes that change everything. To the wonderful people who inspired me to explore. To get the downloadable PDF that has graphics from my book, you can go to the library section of Audible or you can go to tinyhabits.com slash audiobook. Preface Thank you for listening to me share Tiny Habits with you. This preface is not in the print edition of my book. Why? Because here I'm going to share the personal struggles I've had with my speaking voice. For many years, my voice was not normal. When I was a teenager, I was teased and taunted and even bullied because of my voice. The personal embarrassment I felt and the public humiliation I experienced added up over the years, even after I went to college. When it came to my speaking voice, I ended up with a lot of emotional baggage. Today, the fact that I'm narrating my book is a big personal victory. There were decades of my life when I never would have imagined this to be possible. I believe that everybody faces big challenges at some point in their lives. Some challenges are easy to hide and you struggle in private. Other challenges, like a voice disability, are easily observed and you struggle in public. Either way, these life challenges can cause years or maybe decades of frustration and shame. You may be deeply discouraged and perhaps you're afraid to try again because you've tried so many things before, right? Well, I've been there. And that's why I'm recording this special preface. Whatever challenge you face, I'm here to tell you, in my own voice, that what I share in this book will help you. I'll give you a step-by-step -step process for the best way to move forward, and it's much easier than you think. You'll see evidence in your own life that you can change, and quickly, tiny habits will give you hope and build your confidence. Most of all, as you apply what's in this book, You'll learn to feel good about yourself as you recognize and celebrate the tiny successes throughout your day. And that, well, that opens the door to transformation. Right now, all this might sound impossible to you, and that's okay. But please keep listening. I know this book can help you because I've road-tested these methods with over 40,000 people. I've seen the results, both in my research data and in the personal stories people share with me. Now at this point, let me explain more about my speaking voice and why I'm so grateful to be reading my book for you. In elementary school, I was enrolled in speech therapy because I wasn't pronouncing words in the standard way. A skillful coach made my therapy sessions fun but I realized at that point my speaking voice was not normal. I don't remember that being so traumatic, not really. 
However, it probably made me more sensitive to the serious limitations I'd face later. All through my teenage years, I had a very high voice. I talk like this, even when I was a senior in high school. Try as I might, I couldn't kickstart puberty. While all my guy friends were growing into young men with appropriate voices, me, I felt stuck with a child's body and a child's voice. In fact, my nickname was Squirrel. And those were the nice kids, my friends, who called me that. When I finally did start growing, eventually to six foot three as I stand today, my voice wouldn't budge. At age 17, I still heard all the jokes. I was Mickey Mouse or Tweety Bird or a chipmunk. Some thought I was faking it with my high voice. They thought I was just talking that way to be annoying. Just talk lower, some of my friends would say, demonstrating their low register, trying to coach me into being normal. But for me, there was nothing lower. That gear just wasn't there. I had no control over my voice, it seemed. I would feel shame every day. My voice seemed to define who I was, and in those early years, I couldn't separate my embarrassing voice from the rest of my self-concept. During those painful years, I wondered why I was made wrong. I wondered why I was damaged goods. My squeaky voice and all the baggage around that limited me in so many ways. I was self-conscious speaking with my friends. I was afraid to ask questions in class. I dreaded giving talks in church on Sunday. As I got older, age 15 and 16, the more sensitive I became about my voice. More and more, interacting with new people was awkward, not just for me, but for others. I knew that even a simple interaction with the store clerk or the county librarian could leave us both feeling awful. For example, we had a guest visit our home when I was about 16. She was sitting alone in our living room waiting for my mom as I walked in the door from school. I was bundled up in a big jacket and wearing a knit cap. I saw our guest and I said, hello. She replied, oh, you must be Cheryl's daughter. No, I said, I'm her son. As I took off my knit cap, humiliated. She apologized over and over. I didn't know what else to do but turn and walk away without saying another word. It was just one more setback for a boy who already had concerns about his masculinity. I was different from others. I could sense that back then. But I couldn't put a finger on what or why. And sometimes even adults seemed to deliberately make my life harder. As a senior in high school, I produced the daily announcements that would be broadcast to all the classrooms each morning at Bullard High School in Fresno, California. I was not the announcer, of course. Instead, I wrote the script, ran the controls, and I played the intro music before I pointed to the announcer to begin. He was a friend of mine. One day, my friend didn't show up on time. The clock was ticking. I realized he wouldn't arrive in time for our program to begin. I gathered all the courage I could muster, and I turned on the intercom system, and I got ready. 
Someone had to read the script, and I was the only one there. Yeah, I was scared. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another beautiful day at Bullard High. And so on. When I was done, I played the closing song with a sigh of relief. As I faded the music, I remembered seeing the door of the vice principal's office swing open. The vice principal, he was a big man, also the football coach, and he stormed toward me. He was furious. What are you doing, he said. You should never again get on that microphone. Do you hear me? <laughs> I heard him, of course. His angry words sliced me with shame, and that moment created a deep wound inside, and then a scar that I still carry with me. A lower register in my voice finally, finally started to emerge three months before I left home for college. At age 18, I could grunt in a low tone, and with effort, I could say a word or two in that lower register, but I couldn't keep my voice there. I tried to master my voice. I'd drive to a nearby fig orchard, park there, and lock the doors. I tried to speak in complete sentences with my low, croaking voice. Over and over, I just couldn't make it work. On top of that, the sound of my dark voice embarrassed me. It would cause me to blush, even when I was alone. Not seeing any other option, I continued to speak in my high voice with friends and family and everyone else until I left for college. My deep, unmanageable voice... Well, I kept that a secret. When I moved into my freshman dorm, I had resolved to always talk in my low voice, no matter what. As a new student, I was meeting a bunch of new people, and I didn't want to be the freak down the hall who talked like Mickey Mouse. My squeaky voice would break through at times, but I focused. Every interaction with new friends and in new classes took concentration. In the dorms and dining halls, people would say, Dude, what's wrong with your voice? And, You sound like a croaking toad. Well, they were right. The dorm basement had soundproof rooms built for practicing musical instruments. That's where I went to read aloud in my deep, breaking voice. Soundproof. That was reassuring as I explored what my voice could and could not do. Fast forward. Eventually, I gained more control over my voice, but not entirely. Over the years, people would say I have a distinctive voice, but for most of my adult life, I saw this as a thinly veiled insult. I still have struggles today with my voice cracking and at times with articulation. It's been a long journey, but I've come to grips with my voice. I've embraced it as a quirky part of my life, but definitely not a character flaw. Today, right now, I see the struggles with my speaking voice created an opportunity for exactly this moment, which is why I wanted to record a special preface. In the minutes and hours ahead, as I share tiny habits with you in my own voice, you'll hear that I'm not perfect. Despite so much practice, my voice will crack at times and my articulation may be off. I hope these oddities will not distract you from the important ideas I want to share. Instead, if you notice my voice being odd, perhaps that can remind you that we all have struggles 
and that we can make progress in ways that once seemed unimaginable. And finally, let any imperfections in my narration remind you that you don't have to be perfect in your own quest to change. Despite not being perfect at each moment, you can move forward, you can progress, and you certainly can achieve an outcome in your life that right now you feel is impossible. And on top of all this, despite the imperfections you might see in your own life, you can still serve others. You can bring hope into the lives of your family members, your friends, and your colleagues. Giving people hope? <laughs> That's what Tiny Habits is all about. When Audible bought the audio rights to my book, I tried to negotiate for one thing, that I would be the narrator. Audible said no in polite emails back to me. I tried again and again. The best Audible would offer is that I could audition to narrate. My wonderful agent, Doug, explained that Audible is making an investment in my audiobook. They won't compromise their investment with a bad narrator. <laughs> and then I understood. But then I went to work. I knew I wasn't a professional narrator, but I had confidence I could get better. Because I've been practicing tiny habits in my own life since 2010, I knew how to create habits. I knew how to iterate. I knew how to deal with setbacks. I had confidence because I had honed the skills of change that I will share with you later in this book. For over a year, I've been practicing for my audition with Audible. I created a morning habit of going alone to my office and I'd read aloud from all sorts of books with my voice recorder turned on. I'd listen to my narration and then I'd try again. As part of my practice, I would listen to professional narrators and, and wow, they were so very good. That was my competition, but I didn't give up. I also wanted to be the narrator of my own book. Well, the day came for the audition. While sitting in my home office, I recorded about 15 minutes reading my book and I emailed the MP3 file to the project leader at Audible. Then I waited. A few weeks later, word came back from Audible that, yes, I could narrate my own book. <laughs> it was like winning the lottery. But still, I worried my voice and my narration would distract from the ideas in my book, so I kept practicing, and I worked with a narration coach, getting more guidance and help. I wanted the audio version of Tiny Habits to be the best it could be, to reach people directly and authentically, and to give them step-by-step -step guidance to make their lives healthier and happier. One of the best guidelines for my narration coach was this. As you are reading, imagine that you're explaining this to a friend. Just you and this good friend. You have something important to share. It can change their lives, and your friend is eager to learn more. Hmm, just you and a friend. That was so helpful. So now, I'm imagining you here with me. I've invested two decades of my life to figure out the methods I'm sharing with you in Tiny Habits, and I'm eager to get started. So I'll end my preface with this. Welcome to Tiny Habits, my friend.
Introduction. Change can be easy and fun. Tiny is mighty, at least when it comes to change. Over the last 20 years, I found that most everyone wants to make some kind of change, eat healthier, lose weight, exercise more, reduce stress, get better sleep. We want to be better parents and partners. We want to be more productive and creative. But the alarming levels of obesity, sleeplessness, and stress reported by the media and seen in my Stanford Lab's research tells me there is a painful gap between what people want and what they actually do. The disconnect between want and do has been blamed on a lot of things, but people blame it on themselves for the most part. They internalize the cultural message of, it's your fault, you should exercise more, but you aren't doing it, shame on you. I'm here to say, it isn't your fault. And creating positive change isn't as hard as you think. For too many years, myths, misconceptions, and well-meaning but unscientific advice have set you up to fail. If you've attempted change in the past and haven't seen results, you may have concluded that change is hard or that you can't succeed because you lack motivation. Neither is accurate. The problem is with the approach itself, not with you. Think of it this way. If you tried putting together a chest of drawers with faulty instructions and parts missing, you would feel frustrated. But you probably wouldn't blame yourself for this, would you? You would blame the manufacturer instead. When it comes to failed attempts at change, we almost never blame the manufacturer. We blame ourselves. When our results fall short of our expectations, the inner critic finds an opening and steps on stage. Many of us believe that if we fail to be more productive, lose weight, or exercise regularly, then something must be wrong with us. If we were better people, we wouldn't have failed. If we had only followed that program to the letter or kept those promises to ourselves, we would have succeeded. We just need to get our act together and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do better, right? Nope. Sorry. Not right. We are not the problem. Our approach to change is, it's a design flaw, not a personal flaw. Building habits and creating positive change can be easy if you have the right approach. A system based on how human psychology really works, a process that makes change easier, tools that don't rely on guesswork or faulty principles. Popular thinking about habit formation and change feeds into our impulse to set unrealistic expectations. We know habits matter. We just need more good habits and fewer bad ones. But here we are, still struggling to change, still thinking it's our fault. All my research and hands-on experience tell me that this is exactly the wrong mindset. In order to design successful habits and change your behavior, you should do three things. Stop judging yourself. 
take your aspirations and break them down into tiny behaviors. Embrace mistakes as discoveries and use them to move forward. Now, this may not feel intuitive. I know it doesn't come naturally to everyone. Self-criticism is its own kind of habit. For some people, blaming yourself is just where your brain goes. It's like a sled in the snow, slipping into a well-worn path down the hill. Now, if you follow the tiny habits process, you'll start taking a different route. Snow will quickly start covering those self-doubting grooves. The new path will soon be the default path. This happens quickly because with tiny habits, you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. The process doesn't require you to rely on willpower or set up accountability measures or promise yourself rewards. There is no magic number of days you have to do something. Those approaches aren't based on the way habits really work, and as a result, they aren't reliable methods for change and they often make us feel bad. This book says goodbye to all that change angst and, even more important, shows you how to easily and joyfully bridge the gap, no matter the size, between who you are now and who you want to be. Tiny habits will be your guide to disrupting the old approach and replacing it with an entirely new framework for change. The system I'll share with you is not guesswork. I've road-tested the process with more than 40,000 people during years of research and refinement by coaching all these people personally and gathering data week by week. I know that the Tiny Habits method works. It replaces misunderstandings with proven principles. It trades prescription for process. You'll take what the co-founder of Instagram, my former student, learned about human behavior to design a breakthrough app, and you'll use the same methods to create breakthrough changes in your own life and the lives of others. And best of all, you get to have fun. Once you remove any hint of judgment, your behavior becomes a science experiment, a sense of exploration and discovery as a prerequisite for success, not just an added bonus. Behavior Design Welcome to Behavior Design. This is my comprehensive system for thinking clearly about human behavior and for designing simple ways to transform your life. My early work in behavior design helped innovators create products that millions of people use every day to get fit, save money, drive efficiently, and more. After seeing the power of these methods to successfully design business solutions, I shifted my focus to the personal. How do we change our own behavior? I got focused on changes that people wanted to make for themselves. And when I looked in the mirror, I saw plenty that could be improved on. Hmm. I decided to do what every gung-ho scientist does at one time or another. I experimented on myself. <laughs> I tinkered with the behaviors I wanted to incorporate into my life. I did silly things that turned out to be wildly successful, like doing two push-ups after every time I pee. 
I did seemingly rational things that totally failed, like trying to eat an orange every day at lunch. Whenever something didn't work, I went back to my models and I analyzed what happened. I started seeing patterns. I followed hunches. I pivoted. I iterated endlessly. Even though I was a behavior scientist, I had to learn how to create habits in my own life. It wasn't obvious or natural for me. It was a deliberate process. But with practice, I turned a weakness into a strength. And six months later, I had significantly changed my life. I lost 20 pounds, and I felt healthier and stronger. I was working more productively and more effectively than ever before. I started eating eggs and spinach for breakfast and cauliflower with mustard as an afternoon snack, and I weeded out foods that weren't helping me. I started each day with an uplifting series of habits, and I designed and redesigned my life and my environment to get better sleep. As I figured this out with twists and turns along the way, I realized that my ability to change was increasing and my momentum was building. As I accumulated dozens of new habits, mostly tiny ones, they combined to create a transformation. Sustaining all this did not feel hard. Hmm, pursuing change in this way felt natural and oddly fun. The results delighted me, and I started teaching my methods to others in 2011. My research showed this approach worked for other people too, and it changed their lives. To my surprise and excitement, what started out as a whimsical self-exploration in the behavior design universe became a proven method called tiny habits, and it's the quickest, easiest vehicle for personal transformation. Before I go on, let me set the record straight. Information alone does not reliably change behavior. This is a common mistake people make, even well-meaning professionals. The assumption is this. If we give people the right information, it will change their attitudes, which will in turn change their behaviors. <laughs> no. I call this the information action fallacy. Many products and programs and well-meaning professionals set out to educate people as a way to change them. At professional conferences, they say stuff like, if people just knew the facts, they would change. As you look at your own experiences, you'll see that information alone did not transform your life. And that's certainly not your fault. In my research on habit formation dating back to 2009, I found that there are only three things we can do that will create lasting change. One, have an epiphany. Two, change our environment. Or three, change our habits in tiny ways. Well, creating a true epiphany for ourselves or others is difficult and probably impossible. So we should rule out that option unless we have magical powers. And I don't. But here's the good news. The other two options can lead to lasting change if we follow the right program. And Tiny Habits gives us a new way 
to tap the power of environment and baby steps. Creating positive habits is the place to start, and creating tiny positive habits is the path to developing much bigger ones. Once you know how tiny habits works and why it works, you can make big one-time changes, you can disrupt unwanted habits, you can work up to bucket list behaviors like running a marathon. I'll help guide you through each of the different behavior change scenarios that you might encounter. The essence of tiny habits is this. Take a behavior you want. Make it tiny. Find where it fits naturally in your life and nurture its growth. If you want to create long-term change, it's best to start small. Here's why. Tiny is fast. (laughs) Time. There's never enough of it, and we always want more of it. We eat drippy hamburgers in our cars and take conference calls while we're at the beach with our kids because we feel so pressed for time. This pressure leads to a scarcity mindset. We believe that there will never be enough time. So we say no to changes because we feel like we don't have the hours to cultivate new positive habits. 30 minutes of exercise a day, cooking a healthy dinner every night, writing daily in a gratitude journal, forget it. Who has the time? Now, you could scold yourself down the path of change, or you could make your life a lot easier. You could start tiny. With the Tiny Habits Method, you focus on small actions you can do in less than 30 seconds. You will quickly wire in new habits, and then they will grow naturally. Starting tiny means you can begin creating a big change without worrying about the time involved. With Tiny Habits, I advise people to start with three very small behaviors, or even just one. The more stressed you are and the less time you have, the more appropriate this method is for you. No matter how much you want to cultivate a healthy habit, you won't be able to do it reliably if you start big. When you go big, the new habit probably won't stick. In many people's lives, tiny isn't just the best option. It might be the only option. Tiny can start now. Tiny allows you to get real with yourself and your life. Tiny allows you to start right now. It meets you where you are. Whether your life is in a desperate spiral or you are stressed out but otherwise fortunate. We all have our own life circumstances to contend with. Ways of thinking that aren't ideal and quirks of psychology that hold us back. We could feel bummed and ashamed about it, or we could use the tiny habits method to hack the system. I won't prescribe exact habits in this book. I'm sharing a method for wiring in any habit you want. You pick the habits. But right here, right now, I'm making an exception. I invite you to start practicing a new habit first thing each and every morning. It's simple. And it takes about three seconds. 
I call it the Maui habit. After you put your feet on the floor in the morning, immediately say this phrase, it's going to be a great day. As you say these seven words, try to feel optimistic and positive. Over the years, I've helped thousands of people bring the Maui habit into their lives, and the results have been excellent. It's certainly been effective in my own life. With the Maui habit, you can start immediately and almost effortlessly toward a better future. Here are some variations on this habit to consider. Some people say a slightly different phrase each morning, such as, Today is going to be awesome. <laughs> if that phrase or some variation works better for you, adjust as needed. Sometimes, people change the timing. Some say this phrase when they look in the mirror in the morning. Now, I'm quite sure that wouldn't work for me. I avoid looking in the mirror first thing. <laughs> but if this spot in your routine works best for you, then go for it. I suggest you start with the classic version as I've described. After you put your feet on the floor in the morning, immediately say, it's going to be a great day. When I do the Maui habit each morning, I pause for two or three seconds after I say the phrase. <laughs> I'm still waking up at that point, and I want the idea to sink in. If you do the Maui habit and feel that it won't be a great day, I advise you to still say this phrase. I say it even on mornings when I feel exhausted or overwhelmed or anxious about the day ahead. In that moment, sitting on the edge of my bed, I try to feel optimistic. But if this feels phony, then I adjust the phrase in my intonation as I say, it's going to be a great day day somehow. I find this oddly helpful, even on my worst days. When I'm worried about the day ahead, this statement, even when I say it with a question in my voice, it seems to open the door just a crack to actually having a good day. And that's exactly what happens most days. Think of the Maui habit as a simple practice you do each morning in about three seconds. This will show you how easy it is to get started, and it will help you learn the single most important skill in behavior change, feeling successful. Next, tiny is safe. A friend of mine has an 18-month-old baby named Willa who is new to the whole walking thing. The other day, Willa was running around our driveway chasing my dog, Millie, and I watched Willa trip and fall about half a dozen times. Scaling curbs and negotiating sewer grates is tricky business for a toddler, but she kept popping right back up. Willa would squawk a little bit here and there, but she wasn't actually getting hurt, so why not keep going? Now, if I were the one learning to walk and crashing down on hard pavement, well, I'd be pretty banged up. At my height, I'm more than six feet tall, falling would hurt more. <laughs> the same concept applies to starting a new behavior or habit. If you've never done yoga before, there are multiple places to start, but they all have different levels of risk. You could decide to do one sun salutation, 
or buy a month of unlimited classes at your local studio, or hop on a plane for a week-long retreat in India. The investment of time and money and expectation is wildly different with each option. Very few people would take off to India without having stepped foot on a yoga mat. Why? Well, something in our lizard brains inherently understands how high these stakes would be, which is why it can feel hard to start something new if it is too big. If I can barely surf the gentle waves at Cove Park in Maui, I wouldn't dare surf the massive swells at Jaws on the other side of Maui. I would likely get hurt, and I might lose all my confidence in surfing, even on small waves. Why would I do that to myself? It doesn't sound fun. I'd better stick to Cove Park. With tiny habits, risk doesn't have to factor into the equation. Tiny can also be undercover. You can start to change without making a big scene. No one will sabotage you. This reduces the pressure on you. Because these behaviors are so small and the program so flexible, emotional risk is eliminated. There is no real failure in tiny habits. There are little stumbles, but if you get up again, that's not failure. That's a habit in the making. Next, tiny can grow big. Over the last 20 years, I found that the only consistent, sustainable way to grow big is to start small. Amy, a former student of mine, was a stay-at-home mom who was trying to get an educational media company off the ground. The idea of being her own boss and doing something she loved was thrilling. But there was so much to think about. Hiring new employees, shopping around for office space, deciphering tax codes. Well, she would procrastinate the important stuff like legal agreements and choose to work on tasks she loved like designing her logo. But she was running out of time to build her business plan and the thought of the venture falling apart in her hands paralyzed her. Amy wanted to get her business off the ground, and she kept making promises to herself that she'd tackle the big stuff soon. But months after the talking, she still hadn't done any walking. A change myth was holding Amy back. The pervasive idea that you've got to go big or go home. <laughs> we live in an aspiration-driven culture that is rooted in instant gratification. We find it difficult to enact or even accept incremental progress, which is exactly what you need to cultivate meaningful, long-term change. People get frustrated and demoralized when things don't happen quickly. It's natural. It's normal. But it's another way we're set up to fail. When Amy found the Tiny Habits Method, she discovered that the best way to eat a monstrous whale, as Melinda May did in Shel Silverstein's poem, was to take one bite at a time. Amy ditched go big or go home and decided to go tiny. Every morning after dropping her daughter off at kindergarten, she pulled over on the side of the road and wrote one to-do on a sticky note. Just one. 
Each one was something she could accomplish right away. Send out one sales email, schedule a project meeting, draft a quick introduction to a patient guide. The simple act of focusing her energy on writing down one task led to a chain reaction that propelled her entire day and eventually led to the successful launch of her company. The feeling of success stuck with her as she drove home with her post-it fluttering on the dashboard. And when she pulled into her driveway and grabbed the bright pink sticky note, she took it inside to achieve a quick success. One tiny action, one small bite, might feel insignificant at first, but it allows you to gain the momentum you need to ramp up to bigger challenges and faster progress. The next thing you know, you've eaten the whole whale. Next, tiny doesn't rely on motivation or willpower. When it comes to chatter about behavior change, a lot of what you hear will mislead you. Be careful. Even highly cited academic theories often fail to transform people's lives in the real world. As you know, motivation and willpower get a lot of airtime. People are always looking for ways to ramp them up and sustain them over time. The problem is that both motivation and willpower are shapeshifters by nature, which makes them unreliable. Case in point, Junie from Chicago, who had more motivation to make a change than anyone I've met. Her addiction to sugar was threatening her health, her family, and her job. An early morning radio show host with an insanely busy schedule, Junie was always on the move. Instead of sitting down for lunch, she'd down a caramel macchiato from Starbucks. The pace of life on the air was intense, and she thought she needed the sugar to keep up. Junie believed that having that type of energy required stimulants, and ice cream was Junie's drug of choice, bubblegum and cookie dough, to be exact. She'd crash hard when she got home, her two children playing video games as she lay zonked out on the couch. A few years before I met Junie, her mother died from diabetes. It should have been a wake-up call, all the motivation Junie would ever need. But she tried to numb the pain with more and more bubblegum ice cream. Junie gained 15 pounds that summer. Soon after, both of her sisters were diagnosed with diabetes. Then her grandmother, who also had diabetes, passed away. The disease was picking off members of her family one by one. After years of writing off her sugar addiction as a sweet tooth, Junie recognized that it was dangerous. She had lost control. At this point, her motivation spiked. She tried going cold turkey a number of times, which worked for about a day, maybe two. Then she'd get down on herself, feel bad, resume the sugar fest, and watch the scale creep up. Junie thought that conquering sugar was a matter of willpower, that she wasn't strong enough to say no. This was frustrating and confusing for her because she always identified herself as someone who was incredibly strong-willed and determined, 
I mean, you don't make it to a major market radio show any other way. But the idea that stopping a habit is a matter of willpower couldn't have been further from the truth. Soon after Junie joined one of my behavior design boot camps for business reasons, she looked closely at her personal life and realized that her sugar addiction was a design issue, not a character flaw. The fact that her motivation would seesaw wasn't her fault. It wasn't a moral failing. Once Junie understood a key maxim of behavior design, simplicity changes the behavior, she refocused her personal efforts to create a constellation of habits, tiny in size but big on impact. These helped her kick her sugar habit for good. She redesigned her environment and swapped out her go-to sugary snacks with snacks containing less sugar that she liked to eat, not unappealing substitutes like celery sticks and carrots. She cultivated a series of exercise and eating habits that crowded out and undermined her desire for sugar. Junie also discovered that her unresolved grief was prompting many of her sugar-binging behaviors. So she created a few more habits, always starting tiny, to help her process her feelings in a more positive way. When a wave of grief welled up and threatened to overtake her, Junie took that as a prompt to journal or reach out to a friend instead of reaching for the nearest candy bar. Perhaps most important of all, Junie was able to approach every new habit with a mindset of openness and self-compassion. There were moments when she fell off the wagon with sugar, but she didn't look at this as a failure of character, but as a design insight she could use to improve what she did in the future. Keeping changes small and expectations low is how you design around fair-weathered friends like motivation and willpower. When something is tiny, it's easy to do, which means you don't need to rely on the unreliable nature of motivation. Next, tiny is transformative. With the tiny habits method, you celebrate successes no matter how small they are. This is how we take advantage of our neurochemistry and quickly turn deliberate actions into automatic habits. Feeling successful helps us wire in new habits, and it motivates us to do more. I see these results week after week in my tiny habits data. But there's more. With tiny habits, you also learn how to feel good in your life. The ability to pat yourself on the back instead of beat yourself up grows solid, life-changing roots. Linda planted her first tiny habit seed in the middle of what I would call a hurricane-strength life storm. About 10 years ago, before she became a tiny habits coach, things fell apart tragically. In the course of only a few years, her son died of a drug overdose. Her daughter was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the family business was circling the drain. 
In the middle of this already overwhelming time in her life, Linda found out that her husband had been living with undiagnosed early-onset Alzheimer's disease. As she began to take the reins of their business, she discovered another consequence of his illness, a decline in judgment. Bad business decisions coupled with a recession meant that they would be headed to bankruptcy court within months. They lost all their savings, their house, and the horse ranch that had been Linda's dream. This was a series of catastrophes that few of us will ever face, and there wasn't time for despair or shock. Linda had kids to raise and a business to save from bankruptcy. She was grief-stricken with no time to grieve, and she quickly fell into depression. How to start digging out of such a hole? When Linda first started Tiny Habits, she told me that every morning she would find herself on the edge of her bed praying for strength. She wanted to feel better. She wanted to get out of bed. She wanted to be there for her kids. But she had trouble even putting her feet on the ground in the morning. When Tiny Habits came into her life, she could focus on only one thing, the morning challenge. She wanted to start the day off in hope, not despair. After experimenting with several habits, she finally found one, the Maui habit, that she says, quote, literally saved my life. It turned out that this tiny tweak, this pivotal behavior was a fulcrum. Every morning she woke up, put her feet on the floor, and said seven words out loud. It's going to be a great day. Things soon started to feel different, very different. For Linda, Tiny was the only option. She needed to start small to grow big, and she needed to feel good about something. This new habit led to others that helped her feel successful. They helped her to be more productive and get healthy and stay strong for her kids. But most important, her new habits were tiny seeds of positivity that she planted in the cracks of her life, and they grew and grew. Even as new cracks kept appearing, Linda could look around her and be reminded that she had the ability to feel successful. She was successful. The evidence was blooming around her. She just had to keep watering. Six years later, Linda has coached thousands of people in the Tiny Habits Method. She loves her work. She'll be the first to say that her life is still a struggle, but she no longer hesitates when she wakes up in the morning. She knows that Tiny is transformative, so she sits up, she puts her feet on the floor, and says those seven little words. It's going to be a great day. There's an anatomy to tiny habits, and it has three parts. First, the anchor moment. That's an existing routine, like brushing your teeth, or an event, like a phone ringing. The anchor moment is what reminds you to do the new tiny behavior. Next, the new tiny behavior. This is a simple version of the new habit you want. 
such as flossing one tooth or doing two push-ups. You do the tiny behavior immediately after the anchor moment. And three, instant celebration. This is something you do to create a positive emotion inside yourself, such as saying, I did a good job. Now you celebrate immediately after doing the new tiny behavior. Taken together, you can think of it as A, B, C. Anchor, behavior, celebration. Tiny starts with a key. I didn't wake up one day and decide to take the idea of baby steps to an extreme. First, I discovered how human behavior really works. It took me 10 years of researching human behavior to find the key that unlocked the mystery, but in 2007, I did. The answer is surprisingly simple. At first, it was hard to believe that no one had discovered this before, but now I see that some mysteries are like riddles. When you don't know the answers, riddles seem hard to solve. But once you see the answer, the solution seems obvious. With the answer I discovered, you can decode behavior, all behavior. Putting your toothbrush in a new place, unloading the dishwasher every morning before breakfast, watering the garden in the evening, doing two squats while your morning coffee brews, taking the trash out on Wednesday, smoking, not smoking, checking your watch for the time, checking your phone for the time, Instagramming at 3 a.m., kissing your husband when you get home from work, making the bed, not making the bed, eating chocolate, not eating chocolate, listening to me read this book, not listening to me read this book. That habit you've tried for years to cultivate, that habit you've tried for years to stop. Some of these behaviors are positive habits, some are not. What I discovered is that all of these behaviors emerge from the same components. Their relationship drives our every action and reaction. They are the basic ingredients of human behavior. In this book, I share my behavior design models, which will help you think clearly about behavior. I also explain my methods, which will guide you in designing habits. In the downloadable PDF that goes with this audiobook, you can see a chart of all the models and methods I include in this book. My models and methods are supported by research in behavior science and evidence from related domains. You can find a large set of references at tinyhabits.com references. And in the chapters that follow, I give you all the exercises you need to redesign your habits. If you want more, you can find worksheets and other resources at tinyhabits.com resources. When you know how to adjust the components of human behavior, you can begin to tackle any behavior change challenge in your life which means there is no feeling stuck, which means you can be the person you want to be. Now, if this sounds awesome and crazy and a little overwhelming, don't worry. I'll be right here with you, sharing what I've learned from helping thousands of people change their lives. So, where do we start? 
with the key that unlocks the mystery, the FOG behavior model. Here are the exercises. Tiny exercises to start practicing tiny habits. The best way to learn the tiny habits method is to start practicing immediately. Don't wait. Get started with the Maui habit, as I explained earlier. In addition, do the exercises below. In all of this, don't try to be perfect. Instead, adopt the mindset of a habiteer. Now, that's someone who practices tiny habits. That means you dive in and you learn as you go along. Don't get stressed out or uptight. Be flexible and have fun. Exercise number one, the flossing habit. You already know how to floss your teeth, all of them. But if you're like most people, you don't make a habit of flossing. It's not automatic in your life. This exercise can help you change that by focusing on the automaticity of the habit, not the size. Step one, find a type of floss you like. You might need to try a few different styles to see what feels best for you. Step two, set the floss on your bathroom counter, ideally right by your toothbrush. Step three, after you set down your toothbrush, pick up the floss container and tear off some floss. Step four, floss one tooth. Step five, Smile at yourself in the mirror and feel good about creating a new habit. Now note, in the days ahead, you can floss more than one tooth if you want, but view anything more than one tooth as extra credit. You are going above and beyond. Exercise number two, daily chocolate. Small amounts of dark chocolate can be good for your health. Make eating a bit of it a daily habit. Now, if chocolate doesn't work for you for whatever reason, find something else and still do exercise number two. Step one, purchase some dark chocolate that you believe is healthy. Step two, eat a small bit of it in the morning after you brew your coffee or when you take your vitamins. The behavior sequence might look like this. After I take my last vitamin in the morning, I will eat a small bit of healthy chocolate. Step three, savor the taste of the chocolate and feel happy about adding a healthy habit to your life. Now, note this. The daily chocolate habit is one that you don't want to grow. Think of it like a bonsai tree. It's tiny but inspiring. Exercise number three, remind yourself that you change best by feeling good. If there's one concept from my book I hope you embrace, it's this. People change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. For that purpose, I've created this exercise for you. Step one, write this phrase on a small piece of paper. I change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Step two, tape the paper to your bathroom mirror or anywhere you'll see it frequently. Step three, read the phrase often. And step four, notice how this insight works in your life and for the people around you.
Chapter 1 The Elements of Behavior You can change your life by changing your behaviors. You know that. But what you may not know is that only three variables drive those behaviors. The FOG behavior model is the key to unlocking that mystery. It represents the three universal elements of behavior and their relationship to one another. It's based on principles that show us how these elements work together to drive our every action, from flossing one tooth to running a marathon. Once you understand the behavior model, you can analyze why a behavior happened, which means you can stop blaming your behavior on the wrong things, like character and self-discipline, for starters. And you can use my model to design for a change in behavior in yourself or in other people. The model is written like this. B equals M-A-P. And you can say it like this. Behavior happens when motivation and ability and prompt converge at the same moment. A behavior happens when the three elements of M, A, and P, motivation, ability, and prompt, come together at the same moment. Motivation is your desire to do the behavior. Ability is your capacity to do the behavior. And prompt is your cue to do the behavior. I'll give you an example. In 2010, when I was at the gym, rocking out to Janet Jackson on the elliptical strider, I performed a strange behavior for people with pulse rates of more than 120 beats per minute. I donated to the Red Cross. I did it in response to a text message inviting me to do so. Here's what my one-time behavior looks like when you break it down using the behavior model. Behavior donating via text to the Red Cross after the massive earthquake in Haiti. Motivation. I wanted to help the victims of a devastating disaster. Ability. It was easy to reply to a text message. Prompt. I was prompted by a text message from the Red Cross. In this case, the three elements, M, A, and P, converged, so I did the behavior. I made a donation. But if one of those three elements hadn't been sufficient, there's a good chance that I wouldn't have. My motivation for this action was high. The earthquake effects were well-publicized and genuinely heart-wrenching. But what about ability? What if the Red Cross had called me and asked for a credit card number instead? Well, I was striding on the elliptical machine with my wallet in the car, so that would have made it very hard for me to do the behavior. What about the prompt? What if the fundraisers didn't use the phone at all? What if they sent me something in the mail and I threw it away without reading it, thinking it was junk mail? Then I wouldn't see the request. No prompt, no behavior. Luckily, the Red Cross did me a favor. I already wanted to donate, and they made it easy. Whether the organizers knew it or not, they designed M, A, and P perfectly for the behavior they were trying to encourage. And it's not just me. 
the texting campaign was very successful, raising more than $3 million in the first 24 hours and more than $21 million by the end of the week. Well done, Red Cross. This book is about behavior design. And there are two components, models and methods. And here, we see the first model, which is the FOG behavior model. Models are all about how to think clearly about behavior. And then you have methods in behavior design. Methods are how to design for the behavior. And the first method here is the tiny habits method. B equals MAP applies to all human behavior. When I first teach people my behavior model, they are sometimes a little dubious when I tell them this is a universal model. They wonder how one model with just four letters could possibly account for every kind of behavior and every culture. After all, there are good behaviors and bad behaviors. Are they really equivalent? Many people have a hard time understanding how their online shopping diversion has anything to do with their workout regimen. People think that there must be something fundamentally more complex about the fitness regimen because it's a challenge. On the flip side, if a change is easy, like hanging your coat in the closet instead of on the banister, there must be something fundamentally different about that action. There isn't. Behaviors are like bicycles. They can look different, but the core mechanisms are the same. Wheels, brakes, pedals. That being said, just because the building blocks of behaviors are the same doesn't mean that those behaviors feel the same, look the same, or act the same. Adding to the disconnect, the emotions people have about pleasurable behaviors differ drastically from the ones they have about behaviors they deem challenging. Sometimes it feels more like the difference between a unicycle and a road bike. At first, some people can't see how the two categories of behaviors are even related. This concept is important for anyone trying to change any behavior. Every month or so, I hold a behavior design boot camp, a two-day workshop where I help business people learn how to create effective solutions for wellness, financial security, environmental sustainability, and so on. My boot campers almost always take what they learn and translate it to their personal lives. That's why I often kick off the boot camp with an exercise that uses a personal example. I ask people to tell me about one positive habit they created without much effort, and then a bad habit they feel terrible about and want to stop. Boot campers come up with great stories about their habits, but at one of my events, a woman named Katie nailed how different two behaviors can seem. Katie was a talented executive overseeing dozens of employees and a $10 million budget, and her good habit was tied to her productivity. Katie had a rock-solid habit of tidying her desk each day before leaving work. After she shuts down her computer for the day, she neatly stacks her papers and sorts the stickies on her whiteboard into to-do, done, and in-progress columns. After her desk looks good, Katie pushes her chair in and leaves the office. When she walks in the next morning and looks at her desk, Katie always feels a little punch of energy. 
she's reminded that she's ready to start the day and that she's all set up to make sure it's a good one. When I asked if acquiring this habit was a conscious choice or not, she said no. She had just started doing it one day. Katie hadn't thought much about her desk tidying habit. It even took a while for her to identify this as a positive habit, but when I asked about a habit she didn't want, she practically leaped out of her chair. Scrolling in bed, I hate it, but I can't stop doing it. Sometimes I lie in bed looking at Facebook for so long that I miss my workout, she added. Katie told me that it all starts because her phone is her alarm clock. When it goes off, she plucks it off the nightstand, rolls over on her side, and starts tapping and scrolling. I asked when her alarm is set to wake her up. 4.30 a.m. Whoa, I said. At the beginning of the year, Katie had made a resolution to work out every day. Some days she did, but most days she didn't. It wasn't because she decided not to. It was because she got sucked into the digital vortex despite her early wake-up time. Those red notification numbers demanded attention. One click would lead to a video, which would lead to a feed from someone she didn't even know, then to another video, and then to the 5.30 alarm going off. Another day had begun by not doing the workout she had promised herself she would do. Cue the criticism and guilt. She didn't like the pattern she'd fallen into. But she told herself that she was on top of her life in so many ways that maybe this was where her togetherness ran out. Let's consider both of Katie's habits together, desk tidying and binge scrolling. Two behaviors, two wildly different feelings. One behavior makes Katie feel good and helps her to achieve her larger aspiration of being productive. This tidiness habit has become so automatic that she hardly even thinks about it. In contrast, the scrolling habit is enjoyable in the moment, but it makes her feel disappointed in herself afterward. Scrolling in bed drives her crazy, but she often can't resist doing it. These behaviors feel very different to Katie, yet the components aren't. All behaviors driven by the same three elements. I wanted Katie to know that she hadn't run out of togetherness or willpower. She merely had a third habit, a scrolling habit, that was getting in the way of a poorly designed exercise habit. Now remember, for a behavior to occur, three elements must converge at the same time. Motivation, ability, and prompt. It's a model that has profound implications. Each person's motivation, ability, and prompt will be different in any given situation. The specifics of motivation or ability may differ by culture or age, and that's okay. The universe is unendingly complex, yet we observe a phenomenon and break it down using some basic principles that apply to every circumstance. Consider this visual representation of B equals MAP, which shows how motivation and ability work in relationship to each other. When you look at the downloadable PDF at the Fog Behavior Model, 
the first thing to notice in this case is the big dot. That's Katie's habit of tidying her desk. The dot's location tells us where her motivation and ability are when she is prompted to act. You can see that her motivation is in the middle and that her ability to tidy her desk is on the easy-to-do side of the spectrum. Now, there's a curved action line on this graphic. True to its smiling shape, the action line is our buddy. If I were to have only one thing engraved on my headstone, it would be this happy little curve. When a behavior is prompted above the action line, it happens. Suppose you have high motivation but no ability. For example, you weigh 120 pounds, but you want to bench press 500 pounds. Well, you're going to fall below the action line and feel frustrated when you are prompted. On the other hand, if you are capable of the behavior, but you have zero motivation, a prompt won't get you to do the behavior. It will only be an annoyance. What causes the behavior to be above or below the action line is a combination of motivation pushing you up and ability moving you to the right. Here's a key insight. Behaviors that ultimately become habits will reliably fall above the action line. Let's plot Katie's scrolling behavior. In the downloadable PDF, you can see another graphic that then maps this habit, scrolling in bed, onto the fog behavior model. Yikes, look at that big dot. Sky-high motivation for scrolling in bed and high ability. It's so easy to do. On top of that, you know that Katie's prompt is reliable. Her phone blasts an alarm every morning at 4.30 a.m. When you see this habit placed on the model, it makes sense why Katie, a successful, accomplished, and capable person, is having a hard time kicking this scrolling habit. You can see why it's wired in. Unless something changes, she's likely to keep scrolling and not exercising. We have to do two things. Redesign her scrolling habit, then redesign her exercise habit. The first thing to remember is there is no one solution for every behavior challenge. Our job is to adjust the components, motivation, ability, and prompt, and find out what combination works best in each circumstance to get the behavior we want. We have to make her scrolling hard to do or change her motivation to scroll. Then we can look at our exercise habit. There are two core principles that we can rely on when we analyze behavior by turning the dials of motivation, ability, and prompt. Motivation and ability have a compensatory relationship. Once you understand how this principle works, you can design for almost any behavior you want. The curved action line on the FOG behavior model visually represents this principle. But here's the explanation in plain English. Number one, the more motivated you are to do a behavior, the more likely you are to do the behavior. In the downloadable PDF, you'll see a graphic of the FOG behavior model with a specific behavior mapped to it where the motivation is very high 
although it's hard to do. And this behavior is a mother protecting her child. High motivation, hard to do. She can do it. She's above the action line because she's so motivated. When motivation is high, people not only take action when prompted, they can also do difficult things. If you've ever read about a mother fighting off a bear to save her child, or an ordinary person pulling someone out of a path of an oncoming subway car, you get the point. Adrenaline races, stakes are high, hard things get done. When motivation is middling, people will do a behavior only if it's fairly easy, like Katie's desk tidying habit. Let's go to principle number two. The harder a behavior is to do, the less likely you are to do it. Let's suppose that you're reading my book rather than listening to it, and somebody asks you to show them the cover of my book. Would you do it? <laughs> Probably. It requires a flick of the wrist and an interruption of your reading, which is a minor annoyance, but no big deal. It's easy to do. However, if someone asks you to read the entire book to them, then your response would probably be different. You would need a lot of motivation to do this behavior. Perhaps the person asking is visually impaired. Perhaps you are offered $1,000 to do it. Yeah, those things could work. My point, you need serious motivation to do a behavior if it's difficult. In the downloadable PDF, there's a graphic that compares a really easy behavior, like showing the cover of my book, to a difficult behavior, like reading the entire book out loud. The really easy behavior is above the action line. But in contrast, the difficult behavior is not. Here's a related insight that might begin to transform your life. It transformed mine. The easier a behavior is to do, the more likely the behavior will become a habit. Let me repeat that. The easier a behavior is to do, the more likely the behavior will become a habit. This applies to habits we consider good and bad. It doesn't matter. Behavior is behavior. It all works the same way. Consider Katie's scrolling in bed habit. She already has her phone in hand, thanks to her alarm, so scrolling as a next step is really easy to do. Let's go to principle number three. Motivation and ability work together like teammates. You need to have both motivation and ability for a behavior to land above the action line. But motivation and ability can work together like teammates. If one is weak, the other needs to be strong to get you above the action line. In other words, the amount you have of one affects the amount you need of the other. Understanding the relationship of motivation and ability opens the door to new ways of analyzing and designing behaviors. If you only have a little bit of one, then you need more of the other. That is, they compensate for each other. In Katie's case, her desk tidying habit is fairly motivated, but also easy to do. She told me that it takes less than three minutes for her to complete her tidying routine, which means it's not something that is going to make her late for picking up her kids. Her ability to do this behavior started out in the easy zone, and the more she does it, the more streamlined her process becomes. In general, 
the more you do a behavior, the easier it gets. The FOG behavior model describes a snapshot in time, one specific behavior at a specific moment. But I've also used this model to show how behavior happens over time. Behavior 1 leads to behavior 2, which leads to behavior 3. That's a powerful extension of this model. But here, I simply want to point out how most behaviors become easier to do when repeated. In the downloadable PDF, you'll find a graphic of the FOG behavior model that shows behavior 1, behavior 2, and behavior 3 all mapped onto the same graphic. Each behavior gets easier to do as it's plotted onto the behavior model. The takeaway principle is this. A behavior usually becomes easier to do when repeated. Even on days when Katie's motivation dips, the tidying task is still easy enough to make up the difference. An important point. If she had started by cleaning her whole office, she wouldn't have developed this behavior into a habit. When she felt rushed, she'd skip it. Principle number four. No behavior happens without a prompt. If you don't have a prompt, your levels of motivation and ability don't matter. Either you're prompted to act or you're not. No prompt, no behavior. Simple yet powerful. Motivation and ability are continuous variables. You always have some level of motivation and ability for any given behavior. When the phone rings, your motivation and ability to answer it are always there in the background. But a prompt is like lightning. It comes and goes. If you don't hear the phone, your prompt, you don't answer it. You can disrupt a behavior you don't want by removing the prompt. This isn't always easy, but removing the prompt is your best first move to stop a behavior from happening. A year or so ago, I went to the South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas. I walked into my hotel room and threw my bag on the bed. When I scanned the room, I saw something on the bureau. Oh no, I said out loud to absolutely no one. There was an overflowing basket of goodies. Pringles, blue chips, a giant lollipop, a granola bar, peanuts. Now, I try to eat healthy foods, but salty snacks are delicious. I knew the goodie bin would be a problem for me at the end of every long day. It would serve as a prompt. Eat me. I knew that if the basket sat there, I would eventually cave. The blue chips? <laughs> They'd be the first to go. Then I'd eat those peanuts... So I'd ask myself, how could I stop this behavior from happening? Could I demotivate myself? <laughs> no way. I love salty snacks. Can I make it harder to do? Maybe. I could ask the front desk to raise the price on the snacks or remove them from the room, but that might be slightly awkward. So what I did was remove the prompt. I put the beautiful basket of temptations on the lowest shelf in the TV cabinet and I shut the door. I knew the basket was still in the room, but the treats were no longer screaming, eat me, at full volume. By the next morning, I'd forgotten about those salty snacks. I'm happy to report that I survived three days in Austin without opening the cabinet again. Notice that my one-time action disrupted the behavior by removing the prompt. If that hadn't worked, 
There were other dials I could have adjusted, but prompts are the low-hanging fruit of behavior design. Teaching the behavior model. Now that you've heard how my behavior model applies to various types of behavior, I'll explain more ways to use this model. When I work with students at Stanford University or train industry innovators, I teach them how to explain my model in two minutes or less. I first give a demonstration, drawing on the whiteboard, as I explain each part. After I finish the two-minute demo, I outline the steps that work best, including some specific phrases to use. Finally, I have each person step up to a whiteboard or get out a piece of paper and explain the model to someone else while sketching it out in real time. Learning to explain the behavior model quickly and clearly is one of the most useful skills in behavior design. Now, I'm not with you in person to teach you this skill, so I've created a tiny exercise at the end of this chapter for your benefit. If you need more guidance, you can go online to get the exact script and watch how other people teach the model. The few minutes it takes to learn to teach the behavior model is a terrific investment of your time. Once you've learned the behavior model, you can apply this in many practical ways, including stopping a behavior or troubleshooting a behavior. And that's what I want to explain next. Using the behavior model to disrupt a habit. Now that you know how motivation and ability work together, and how prompts are vital to behavior, let's go back to Katie. How can she break her scrolling habit? Her motivation is high. The behavior is very easy. That puts her habit far above the action line. In the downloadable PDF, you'll see the FOG behavior model with Katie's scrolling in bed habit mapped in the upper right-hand corner. High motivation, easy to do. All she needs is a prompt. So what could Katie change? Motivation? (laughs) Unlikely. Those happy feelings she gets when she sees that someone liked her post, those aren't going anywhere. They're baked into the app. Katie wants to stay updated on friends, and Facebook is doing that for her. Motivation is likely to remain high with this one. Well, what about ability? This is where we find a big opportunity for change. Katie could delete her Facebook account to make scrolling her newsfeed impossible to do. But perhaps that's too extreme. She still might want to check it at other times throughout the day. Luckily, there are plenty of other ways to make it harder for Katie to look at her phone while in bed. She could delete the Facebook app from her phone. She could put her phone across the room on the bureau. She could put her phone outside her daughter's door to ensure that she'd spring out of bed to shut off the alarm before her daughter woke up. Or she could leave her phone in the car. Because Katie's motivation for scrolling was so high, she had to experiment with a bunch of different options before she finally found this two-pronged solution. She put her phone in the kitchen at night and got an old-fashioned alarm clock for her bedroom. Putting some physical distance between her and the phone made her scrolling behavior harder to do, and having the alarm clock wake her removed the prompt altogether. 
If you can't change one component of the behavior model, in this case, motivation, then you focus on changing the others, ability or prompt. What about her exercise habit? As it turns out, she didn't need any adjustment. Once Katie removed the distraction of scrolling, she started working out with the plans and tools she already had in place. With enough tinkering, you can design for almost any behavior you want and short-circuit most behaviors you don't. Katie did it fairly easily and successfully. But first, she had to know the ins and outs of what was driving her scrolling in bed habit. Months after Behavior Design Boot Camp, Katie told me how happy she was to finally have a solid workout habit in her life. She still got sucked into her phone on occasion over breakfast or while waiting in line, but it didn't have the same iron grip on her. Most days, she was the master of her mornings. She felt physically stronger than ever, but most important, she was learning that behavior design could improve any area of her life. One model to understand all behavior. If you want to be highly effective at changing your own behavior or anyone else's, mastering the behavior model is the key. Once you have a clear view of how behavior works, you'll be able to decode other people's behavior as well as your own, a powerful skill. You can begin to foster positive habits and disrupt the ones you don't like and you'll have more compassion for other people's less-than-ideal behaviors. I was getting on a flight a few years ago, and I saw an active kid seated behind me. <laughs> As we settled in, I felt his little feet kicking my seat over and over. Ugh. I knew that he'd likely be kicking my seat during the entire flight. I mean, he's a kid, after all. So before the plane took off, I asked myself, what could I do to stop or reduce the kicking behavior? I put my behavior model to work. First, the prompt. Could I remove it? Nope. I had no control over his internal desire, boredom, or whatever was prompting him to kick the seat. Then, ability. Could I make his kicking harder to do? No. So I was left with one final option motivation. How could I, in a calm and playful way, motivate this little guy to kick the seat less? I decided to use the rule of reciprocity. When someone gives you a gift, you naturally want to return the favor in some way. This dynamic helps humans get along with one another. It's also one way we can gracefully influence motivation. I decided to give it a try. I had a yellow smiley face button in my computer bag. <laughs> yeah, I'm practically Mr. Rogers. Let's get that out of the way right now. I got it out of my bag and showed it to the little passenger and his parents. Hey, I said, I want to give you this smiley face button. I'm hoping this will help you remember not to kick my seat during the flight. The kid said yes, and the parents thanked me with genuine smiles. The flight went great. No seat kicking. And I made a few friends in the process. We waved goodbye at baggage claim. By using the behavior model at home, you can help people in your household help you. 
As anyone in a long-term relationship can attest, tension over housework can be corrosive. My partner Denny and I have different views about household cleaning because I'm more of a tidy enough person, and Denny is more of a disinfect everything person. Over the years, cleaning the shower became an issue. Denny is hyper-vigilant about mold, but our shower doesn't drain well, which leads to, well, you guessed it, mold. So he'd been asking me to wipe out the shower after I used it. But I didn't do it most of the time. (laughs) In fact, I rarely did. One day, Denny invited me to look at the shower with him, and he put behavior design into action. We both want a clean shower, he said. I agreed. He saw that I had some level of motivation. Then he asked me about ability. What seemed hard about wiping out the shower? I told him that I didn't know what his request meant. Did he want me to use my towel or a squeegee? Should I wipe down the walls? This was Denny's aha moment. He hadn't been specific about what he wanted, so the abstract behavior felt hard to do for me. What he did next was brilliant and simple. He showed me what to do. He walked into the shower and said, Okay, when you turn off the shower, that's your prompt. You grab the shower towel off the rack like this, then you put it on the floor and shuffle around on it like this. Then you throw the towel into the dirty laundry and you're done. What Denny showed me was so easy. It almost made me feel silly for not doing it in the first place. It took about 10 seconds. Once he showed me what to do, my perception of the difficulty of the task changed. It suddenly seemed easy to do. I've wiped out the shower every day since Denny's theatrical demonstration. Why? Well, first of all, I wanted a clean shower, and I wanted to please him. So I had at least some motivation. But the behavior seemed difficult. Once he showed me exactly what to do, I saw it was easy, and I zoomed above the action line. Fast forward to today. When it comes to household tasks, an area where I'm not an expert, I know to say, show me exactly what you want me to do. I watch him, and my ability increases. These are a couple of small examples of how you can use the behavior model with other people. We'll devote a whole chapter to this when we have more tools in our change toolbox. Three steps for troubleshooting a behavior. We often want to do a behavior, or want someone else to do a behavior, and are met with little or no success. For those situations, I have good news. Behavior design gives us a specific set of steps for troubleshooting this common problem. And it's not what you'd expect. Let's say you want your employees to show up for your weekly meeting on time, but they consistently arrive a few minutes late. Many managers would get upset, impose a penalty, or shoot dirty looks at the people arriving late. (laughs) All those are attempts to use motivation to get the behavior of arriving on time to happen. And all of those are mistakes. You don't start with motivation when you troubleshoot. You follow these steps instead. Try each step in order. If you don't get results, move to the next step. Step one, 
check to see if there's a prompt to do the behavior. If there is, great, go to the next step. If there's not, design a prompt. Step two, see if the person has the ability to do the behavior. If not, make it easier to do. If so, go to the next step. Step three, see if the person is motivated to do the behavior. To do an expert job of troubleshooting a behavior for yourself or others, start with the prompt. Is the person being prompted to do the behavior? You might ask your tardy employees, hey, do you have a reminder to come to the meeting on time? If they don't, have them find a good prompt, and that might just solve the problem. No drama, no dirty looks, just design a good prompt. If that doesn't work, then you move to the next step. See if people have the ability to do the behavior. Ask your tardy employees what is making it difficult for them to arrive at your meeting on time. Now, I'll explain a comprehensive approach in Chapter 3, but this question is good for now. You might learn that the tardy employees have a previous meeting that ends at the top of the hour and that they can't arrive at your meeting on time. With that, you found your answer. It's an ability problem, not a motivation problem. But let's pretend that they have a prompt and the ability, and then you know it's a motivation issue. In this case, you try to find a good way to motivate punctuality. And there are lots of ways to do this, both good and bad. Notice that fussing around with motivation is the last step in the troubleshooting order. Most people assume that to get a behavior to happen, you need to focus on motivation first. This process of troubleshooting can save you some grief both at work and at home. Let's suppose you've asked your teenage daughter to stop on her way home from school to buy some poster board you need for a church lesson. She has your car, and you think this is a fair request. She gets home from school that day, and she doesn't have your poster board. You get upset and explain how much you need that poster board. Well, both of those are motivation strategies. Your daughter says, sorry, I'll do it tomorrow. But there's no poster board the next day. Hmm. At this point, you might stomp around the living room, threaten to take away her driving privileges, and make a comment about how unreliable she is. All three are motivation strategies. As you know, this is not a good situation. Now, let's rewind this story and imagine that you know how to troubleshoot. So you don't get upset when your daughter arrives home without the poster board on the first day. You go into troubleshooting mode. Did you have anything to remind you to get the poster board? No, I just thought I'd remember, but I forgot. So you design a prompt for the next day by asking, what do you think would be a good reminder for you tomorrow? And she says that she's putting a to-do note on her phone. Guess what? She hands you the poster board with a smile the next day. When you apply this troubleshooting method to your own behavior, you'll find that it stops you from blaming yourself. Let's say you don't meditate in the mornings, as you'd hoped. Instead of blaming yourself for a lack of willpower or motivation, walk yourself through the troubleshooting steps. Did you have something to prompt you? Next, what is making this hard to do? In most cases, you'll find your lack of doing a behavior 
is not a motivation issue at all. You can solve for the behavior by finding a good prompt or by making the behavior easy to do. See the world through the behavior model lens. I want you to practice observing the world through the lens of the behavior model. It will serve two purposes. One, it's fun. Two, it will help you break things down along the lines of motivation, ability, and prompt so you can identify what's driving your own behavior or anyone else's. At the end of this chapter, I'll read some tiny exercises that you can do to help you apply the behavior model in practical ways. Most people who use the behavior model for step-by-step -step troubleshooting report that this method helps them see the machinery of human behavior. You will be able to deconstruct your efforts at change and know how they're being undermined or supported. You'll be able to better understand why you do some behaviors that you regret later. We all do things we don't like. <laughs> Eat popcorn for dinner, yell at the kids, binge watch Netflix. But we don't have to be blind to these behaviors or frustrated by them. And really, really, we don't have to blame ourselves. No one reminds me of this more than Jennifer, a talented graphic artist and an awesome mom. Before she signed up for Tiny Habits Online and learned about the behavior model, she was frustrated that she couldn't get herself to exercise. Jennifer used to work out all the time. She was an avid runner in college and even ran half a marathon with a friend a few years before she had kids. Things changed. And these days, doing the dishes and the laundry was the most physical activity Jennifer engaged in. She really wanted to work out, but she was out of shape. She knew she had to start slow and steady. Jennifer began doing yoga in her home office for 15 minutes once in a while and occasionally ran to the end of the street. All things she was capable of doing, nothing too strenuous, but she couldn't get herself to do this with any regularity. Days she exercised became good days, and days she didn't became extra glass of wine days. She told me later that this made her feel like a failure. The thing that used to be so easy for her was now a daily struggle. Most days she couldn't get herself to run to the mailbox, let alone five miles. An achievement that used to bring her much joy. She felt like something was wrong with her. Why couldn't she get herself to do it? Jennifer was describing something common, a feeling of blockage or resistance. Every day, she told herself that she should lift weights or go for a run, but she often came up with reasons not to. Online shopping for the kids, research for work. Then she felt like a failure at the end of the day. She knew she was making excuses for not doing something that was good for her. Was she depressed? Self-loathing? Weak-willed? What was going on? When I emailed Jennifer in the weeks following her Tiny Habits experience, she told me how she had solved the puzzle of her exercise habit. First, she looked at what was going on with motivation, ability, and prompt. She broke her behavior down step by step and zeroed in on motivation. It was almost non-existent. Most days, she simply didn't want to do yoga in the office by herself. Jennifer set aside her idea of solitary yoga to find a better match. 
By listing different exercises that appealed to her, she stumbled on solid gold. The exercises she enjoyed had one thing in common. They were done as part of a group. The more she thought about it, the more Jennifer realized that working out by herself wasn't fun. It felt like an obligation, and she didn't have enough motivation to get herself over the action line. In the end, Jennifer gave up on the idea of working out alone, and she matched herself with group exercises. She joined a weekly spin class, then a weekly yoga class, then a mom's running group, and before she knew it, she was back in the habit of working out. This was a huge victory for Jennifer, but figuring out the behavior puzzle wasn't what she was most excited about. The real life changer was that she had broken the self-trash talk spell. Before she knew how behavior worked, she felt nagged by why she couldn't exercise as she used to. It was a narrative running on repeat. You can't do what you used to. What's wrong with you? At the end of the day, she'd chew on this before having her self-prescribed glass of wine. She'd rack her brain for answers. Hmm, maybe she was getting old. Maybe she needed to be on antidepressants. Maybe she should see a personal trainer. She'd eventually get so frustrated and down that she had to busy herself with making dinner and picking up toys. It wasn't until she mapped out her behavior that she realized it wasn't all about her. It was about the behaviors. Once she broke them down into their component parts, she realized where the design flaws were. She had the ability, but she was not sufficiently motivated to work out by herself. To make matters worse, she didn't have a reliable prompt for office yoga time. <laughs> Lucky for Jennifer and for the rest of us. The behavior model doesn't have a lazy axis or a weak axis. It didn't fit her blame narrative. It's a model, not a referendum on character. Once Jennifer realized that she was not her behavior, everything changed. She started to think about her habits as if they were recipes. If the result wasn't to her liking, she needed to change the ratios and fiddle with the ingredients, not beat herself up or give up. From now on, I want you to look at your behavior the way a scientist looks at what's growing in a Petri dish, with curiosity and objective distance. This is going to be a different mindset than the ones in many of the change books you might have read. I'm not dwelling on willpower or rigidly prescribing something that is going to set you up for feeling bad. No, I want you to treat your life as your own personal change lab a place to experiment with the person you want to be, a place where you not only feel safe, but also feel like anything is possible. For the next four chapters, we'll learn about the behavior design process and use it to start our experiments. We'll focus on the tiny habits method because it's the foundation for creating positive habits and it contains all the key principles you'll need to design for other behaviors down the road. You'll use the same process to achieve specific outcomes over time, to do a big one-time behavior, or to disrupt unwanted behaviors. And the first step to creating a pack of positive habits is to decide which ones to cultivate. But before you can do that, 
you've got to take a closer look at what's been tripping you up all these years. If you're listening to me now, there's a good chance that you have some things you want to change but haven't yet. So what has booby-trapped your attempts at change? (laughs) The motivation monkey. Yeah, the motivation monkey tricks us into setting unreasonable goals. He can sometimes help us reach amazing heights, but he will often abandon us when we need him most. Here are some exercises at the end of the chapter. Tiny exercises to practice the fog behavior model. The first exercise is easy. The second exercise will take a bit more work, but don't skip it. I guarantee you that your investment of time and effort will pay off. Exercise number one. Explore ways to stop a habit. The FOG behavior model applies to all types of behavior change. In this exercise, you'll explore simple ways to stop a habit. Step one. Write down three habits that you'd like to stop. Try to be specific. For instance, write, stop buying soda for lunch rather than stop drinking soda. Step two. For each habit, think of ways you might remove or avoid the prompt. If you can't think of anything, that's okay. Move on to the next step. Step three. For each habit, think of ways to make it harder to do. This is the ability component of the behavior model. Step four, for each habit, think of ways to reduce your motivation. And now step five, for each habit, select your best solution from steps two, three, and four. Extra credit, put your solution into practice in your real life. Exercise number two, learn the fog behavior model by teaching it to someone else. One great way to learn something is to teach it to someone else. Step one, go to the downloadable PDF and find the script that gives the behavior model word by word. Step two, draw the elements of the behavior model on a piece of paper as you read the script word for word. Practice this until you can explain the model without reading the script. Step three, find someone you can teach. This can be your spouse, your child, a colleague, or a stranger. Step four, explain the behavior model using your drawing of the elements, or even better, draw the model as you explain it. Step five, after you're done with the two-minute explanation, ask your learner, what surprised you? Now, this is my favorite teaching question because it can lead to a conversation that makes the learning experience better for everyone. Chapter 2. Motivation. Focus on matching. Sandra and Adrian had just bought their first home. At the first showing, they had stood on the back deck with their agent and surveyed the only downside to the property, the backyard. It was a mess. A crumbling rock wall, knee-high grass, and a scary-looking compost pile huddled against the back of the garage. At that point, Sandra and Adrian didn't care. They were riding high on the American dream. All they saw was possibility. A veggie garden and flower beds. 
a hammock strung between two scraggly oak trees, a rare bird alighting on a lemon tree. On the day they took down the sold sign, they were excited. They made their checklist of must-do items and jumped in. They started indoors, sanding, painting, scrubbing every square inch of the place. A couple of weeks later, they had crossed everything off their list except the backyard. They stood side by side on the back deck to check things out. They felt very different this time. Their verve for home improvement had fallen off a cliff. They were overwhelmed. Where should they start? Sandra grew up mowing her parents' lawn, but that was the extent of her experience with landscaping. Adrian grew up in an apartment, so he knew even less. They didn't have any garden tools. <laughs> Would a lemon tree even grow in New Hampshire? They knew what they wanted, a beautiful backyard where they could enjoy time with friends and watch their future children run through sprinklers and build forts. But now this felt like a fantasy <laughs> and a ton of work. This is where most people turn around, go back inside, and tell themselves they'll get to it later. Or they dive in full bore and exhaust themselves. Three hours of backbreaking work later, they give up and don't return. Either way, the dream is deferred, replaced by feelings of guilt, disappointment, or failure. So what happened here? When it came to their backyard dreams, the problem is that Sandra and Adrian put all their eggs into the motivation basket. Motivation is unreliable. Motivation is often unreliable when it comes to home improvement, but it's also unreliable with diets, exercise routines, creative projects, filing taxes, opening businesses, searching for jobs, planning conferences, Self-improvement of all types. The motivation monkey's traps are stealthy and numerous. They catch you, whether you're facing a big project or attempting to change your habits. Here's the unfortunate thing. Most people believe motivation is the true engine of behavior change. Words like rewards and incentives get thrown around with such regularity that most people think you can create whatever habit you want if you find the right carrot to dangle in front of yourself. This kind of thinking is understandable, but it also happens to be wrong. Yes, motivation is one of the three elements that drives behavior. The problem is that motivation is often fickle, and this chapter digs deeper into the challenges that presents. Motivation is like a party animal friend. Great for a night out, but not someone you would rely on to pick you up from the airport. You must understand its role and its limitations, then pick behaviors that don't rely on such a fickle friend. In order to do that, we first have to break down the Motivation Monkey's game trap by trap. Then we'll learn how to navigate around them to get what we really want. No dangling of carrots, no self-imposed guilt trips necessary. One, motivation is complex. Let's start with the basics. What is motivation? Motivation is a desire to do a specific behavior, eat spinach tonight, or a general class of behaviors, eat vegetables and other healthy foods each night. Some psychologists talk about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. 
Well, no offense to all those psychologists, but I found this to be a weak distinction that is not very helpful in the real world. In my own work, I focus on three sources of motivation. First, yourself, what you already want. Next, a benefit or punishment you would receive by doing the action. That's the carrot and stick. And third, your context. For example, motivation that comes from all your friends doing it. I created a little guy, a model, called the pack person. And this is three components. The person, the person already wants to do the action. That's where the motivation's coming from. The action itself, there's an external benefit or punishment for doing the action. And third, the context. The motivation is caused by the context in which the person finds him or herself. Motivation can come from one of three places. First, motivation can come from inside a person. You already want to do the behavior. For example, most of us are motivated to look attractive. <laughs> this is built into us as humans. Motivation can also come from a benefit or punishment associated with the behavior. <laughs> Let's talk about taxes. Most of us don't wake up in the morning wanting to pay taxes, but there are punishments for not paying. That motivates us. Finally, motivation can come from our context, our current environment. Let's suppose you're at an art auction that supports a charity. If the cause is worthy, and if people are drinking, and if the auctioneer creates a lot of energy, all of this, the context, which, as you know, is carefully designed, this will motivate you to pay a lot for a simple painting. There also could be more than one source of motivation for doing a behavior. I look at these different motivations as forces pushing you toward or away from an action. Maybe it's the desire to be accepted by a group, or maybe it's the fear of physical pain. Maybe your motivations are moving you toward an action. Maybe they're moving you away. But motivations are always there, pushing you up and down, above the action line or below, depending on their strength at any given moment. Sometimes the complexity of our motivations amounts to a psychological tug-of-war. For instance, Sandra and Adrian may have had competing motivations. They wanted to take a rest and enjoy their newly scrubbed house, but they also wanted to tackle the backyard and cross that project off their list. These competing motivations were driving them toward different behaviors. Our friends may have also had conflicting motivations, which are opposing drives related to the same behavior. Conflicting motivations can be a source of psychic pain. I want to eliminate refined sugars from my diet, but man, I want that chocolate cupcake. These conflicts can seesaw depending on what's happening around us. You can visualize this on the fog behavior model with the motivation to eat the cupcake pushing you up above the action line, but then the conflicting motivation of not wanting to eat sugar pushing you down. These are like vectors in physics pressing on each other. Even more problematic is the fact that we're blind to at least some of our motivations much of the time. We may not fully understand where the desire to eat a certain food is coming from. Do I really love the salty taste of popcorn? Or does my daily popcorn habit stem from nostalgia for the days when my family and I used to eat it during movie night? Changing 
invisible, competing, and conflicting motivations make this element of behavior hard to pin down and control. This makes us even more frustrated when we fail in our efforts to motivate ourselves or others to make lasting change. Two, the motivation wave. Big spikes of motivation are awesome for doing really hard things once. Rescuing your child, quitting your job, throwing away all the junk food in your house, sprinting through the airport to catch a flight, attending your first AA meeting, writing a letter to the editor, keeping all 10 of your New Year's resolutions for a day. When motivation surges, you can do hard behaviors. But high levels of motivation are both scattershot and unsustainable. Sandra and Adrian don't buy a house every day. With the keys in their hands that first day, they had a lot of motivation for home improvement, and they felt capable of doing hard behaviors. And they were capable right then. In fact, motivation helped them for a while. It allowed them to fix up the inside of the home, which was hard and time-consuming. But when they made their checklist, they didn't account for how they would feel the next day or the next week or the next month. At some point, their motivation would sag. In behavior design, we've named this temporary surge in motivation the motivation wave. (laughs) I'm sure you've experienced this before. Your motivation crested and then came crashing down. And maybe you blamed yourself for not sustaining it. You're not to blame. This is how motivation works in our lives. Each year, almost 100 million people enroll in an online course, but the vast majority drop out. Most studies show that less than 10% cross the finish line. These students started out excited and dedicated, but then their motivation waned. Even the prospect of having to pay regardless of the outcome wasn't enough motivation to get the students to complete the course. You see the same thing happen all around you. If you've ever bought a shoulder massager, as seen on TV, (laughs) I'm sorry to say there's a good chance you can't remember the last time you used it. And remember that vegetable juicer the incredibly fit guy sold you at the mall? Yeah. That juicer got used only a couple of times after you got at home. In these and other cases, you got caught in a common trap of the human mind. You overestimated future motivation. It happens to the best of us. You are not dumb or frivolous or easily hoodwinked. You are human. So why do we get thrashed by the motivation wave, even though we know we're being overly optimistic? When you are prompted to act in a way that seems like a good idea, even a necessary one, you feel something. Whether you feel desire, excitement, or fear, it doesn't matter. Whatever is motivating the behavior will quickly be rationalized by your brain. It suddenly feels totally logical to do this thing that might be costly, time-consuming, physically demanding, or disruptive to our everyday lives. We start from emotion then find the rationale to act. Back in our prehistoric past on the savannah, this was a good thing. Motivating emotions evolved to help us succeed and thrive. 
After all, you'd better have an automatic spike of fear that will make you run fast when you suddenly spot a lion. If we are wired to start with rationality, we would be more like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> Do you think Spock has a juicer hanging out in his basement collecting dust? <laughs> no. Spock doesn't get washed away by the motivation wave. He sees it rising, and then he swims under it. He reasons that his enthusiasm for fresh juice will likely wane when he sees how much time it takes to clean the darn thing. 3. Motivation Fluctuation You also need to recognize that motivation changes on a smaller scale. It fluctuates day to day, even minute to minute, and you probably already know some of your own predictable motivation shifts. When was the last time you bought a Santa hat? On December 26th? Yeah, retailers know how this works, and they adapt by selling Santa hats for cheap the week following the holidays when motivation is low, and shoppers won't pay a lot of money for Santa hats. But here are some more subtle and predictable shifts. Willpower decreases from morning to evening. Complex decisions get harder by late in the day. Motivation for self-improvement can vanish on Friday nights. These shifts are among the reasons why you cannot take full control of your motivation. People in the health and wellness industry are tuned into these fluctuations. Years ago, I taught behavior design to the product team at Weight Watchers so they could streamline their global program and focus their members on the best ways to change. Then CEO David Kirchhoff explained the seasonality of their business. The company saw predictable surges in online signups and keyword searches during certain times of the year. Signups were way above average in January. Hello, New Year's resolutions. Weight Watchers also saw a spike in enrollments after Labor Day when people were looking to get back on track after a summer of hot dogs and ice cream. The company could also see where the motivation wave left people high and dry. Weight loss efforts plummeted in early November when people realized they couldn't refuse Aunt Bev's pecan pie at the Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday parties. November and December are the weight loss equivalent of a becalmed sea. No motivation waves in sight. Which is why it's not a good idea to rely on them. Predictable waves are not only the way motivation shifts. Some waves are unpredictable. The same teenager who bugged you for a week to let her go to the Ariana Grande concert will declare the day before the show that she definitely does not want to go anymore. <laughs> Little did you realize that her best friend canceled at the last minute, tanking your teenager's motivation. Shifts in motivation can also happen quickly. You're motivated to eat lunch at 12.15, so you have a big lunch. Then, when someone tells you there's pizza in the conference room at 1.30, eh, you aren't so motivated because you just ate. That said, there's a special situation in which motivation can be enduring. Consider a grandmother who is always motivated to spend quality time with her grandkids, or the teenager who always wants to look good to her friends. These enduring motivations I call aspirations, and that's exactly what I will explain next. Four, motivating toward an abstraction 
doesn't yield results. We all want to be healthy. We all want to have more patience with our kids. We all want to feel fulfilled by our work. And our desire to achieve these aspirations is enduring. Or at least it doesn't change quickly. This seems like a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. An aspiration is an excellent starting point for changing your life. Millions of people genuinely aspire to live healthier, less stressful, and more fulfilling lives. But here's the problem. People often believe that motivating themselves toward an aspiration will lead to lasting change. So people focus on aspirations, and they focus on motivation, and that combo mm, doesn't produce results. This misleading idea is pervasive. You've probably seen a well-meaning public health poster in the doctor's office that shows lots of colorful vegetables with the headline, Eat the Rainbow. <laughs> At first glance, you think, yeah, I need to eat better food. But then you're not sure what practical steps to take. How much green and how much red? Does that mean salad and apples? Or does it mean mint ice cream and red licorice? You're motivated to eat the rainbow, but maybe you don't know how. You may feel frustrated and end up being a little bit hard on yourself. Dreams and aspirations are good things. Yeah, and so are public health campaigns. But investing time and energy to motivate ourselves or other people toward an abstraction is the wrong move. Five, motivation is not the winning ticket for long-term change. When it comes to changing their behavior for the better, people largely believe it's mostly about personal agency and choice. People think if they could only find the right motivator, they would do the thing that they should do, which is usually an abstraction. This unfortunate way of thinking puts the blame squarely on you and your ability or inability to motivate yourself. I want to change all that. I want people to know that if they focus only on motivation, they are ignoring two key components of what actually drives behavior, ability and prompt. Let's say someone offers you a million dollars if you can immediately reduce your blood glucose to normal levels. <laughs> a million dollars is pretty darn motivating, right? But can you reach this outcome immediately? <laughs> Probably not. Motivation alone doesn't get you there. You can't achieve outcomes or aspirations solely through high levels of motivation, which is the least predictable and least reliable of the three components in my behavior model. You're not alone if you previously focused entirely on motivation. But now, I hope you can see that you can't rely on motivation alone to create lasting change because you probably can't sustain it and you might not be able to manipulate or design for it reliably. And I hope you see that this is not a character flaw. It's human nature. You have to work around the motivation monkey's traps instead, not stumble into them. Outsmarting motivation. Before we see how to outsmart the motivation monkey, let's get one thing straight. I'm here to tell you that you should shoot the moon, daydream, create a vision board, the more vividly you can picture what you want, the better. You usually have to know where you're going in order to get there. 
Sandra and Adrian were not wrong to be excited and ambitious about their backyard. That was good. Same goes for you if you're coming to this audiobook with aspirations of starting your own business, saving for an early retirement, or winning a lifelong struggle with obesity. Humans are dreamers by nature, so we've all got a few moonshots tucked into our back pockets at all times. But that's often where they stay, in part because of the way we are tripped up by fickle motivation. So how do we pull our aspirations out of our pockets and start making them happen without relying on motivation? First, let's get clear on the difference between three things. Aspirations, outcomes, and behaviors. When I teach boot camps and workshops on behavior design, one of the first things I ask people is what new behavior they wish to bring into their lives. And this is what I hear. I want to reduce screen time. I want to sleep better. I want to lose 12% body fat. I want to have more patience with my son. I want to be more productive. And I say, great, I can show you how to make those wishes a reality, but those aren't behaviors. Those are the aspirations you have or the outcomes you want to achieve. Aspirations are abstract desires, like wanting your kid to succeed in school. Outcomes are more measurable, like getting straight A's second semester. Both of these are great places to start the process of behavior design. But aspirations and outcomes are not behaviors. Here's an easy way to differentiate behaviors from aspirations and outcomes. A behavior is something you can do right now or at a specific point in time. For example, you can turn off your phone. You can eat a carrot. <laughs> you can open a textbook and read five pages. These are actions you can do at any given moment. In contrast, you can't achieve an aspiration or outcome at any given moment. You cannot suddenly get better sleep. You cannot lose 12 pounds at dinner tonight. You can only achieve aspirations and outcomes over time if you execute the right specific behaviors. I found that people don't naturally think in terms of specific behaviors, and this tendency trips up almost everyone. And now, an aside. People use the word goal when they're talking about aspirations or outcomes. If someone says the word goal, you can't be sure what they're talking about. Is it an aspiration? Is it an outcome? The word goal is ambiguous. For that reason, goal is not part of the vocabulary in behavior design. Use either aspiration or outcome for precision. I once worked with a major bank on a savings initiative. The objective was to encourage customers to have an emergency fund of $500. The bank's web pages had articles experts, and data that made it clear if you didn't have money for emergencies, then you would get into financial trouble when you got a flat tire or a clogged toilet that required a plumber. So what behavior are you asking your customers to do? I asked. Save $500 for emergencies, the project leader said. To this group of highly educated, intelligent, and wonderful people, that seemed pretty specific. But notice that they were talking about an outcome, not a behavior. 
I wanted to make this point, so I challenged the team in a playful way. Okay, each of you, save $500 right now. (laughs) They laughed, and they got my point. Then we went to work. I focused our session on finding specific behaviors their customers could do in order to create an emergency fund. Here are a few we came up with. Call your cable company and scale back your service to the lowest level. Empty your pocket change into an emergency fund jar every evening. Announce a garage sale, then put all the revenue into an emergency fund. In the end, we came up with more than 30 different specific behaviors. Some were better than others, but all of those behaviors had a shot at helping the bank's customers take concrete steps toward reaching the savings outcome. The bank leaders realized that motivation wasn't the missing piece in their puzzle. Instead, they needed to match their customers with specific behaviors that were easy and effective. They learned that their web pages should focus less on the why and more on the how to. Healthcare providers also need to shift their focus in this way. If you've ever been to the doctor and been told that you need to eat better and exercise more, you've probably wondered what eating better entails and how you do it. I start professionals in the same place where I start people who do tiny habits, and it's exactly where you can start. Step one in behavior design. Get clear on your aspiration. The first step in behavior design is to get clear on your aspiration or your outcome. What do you want? What is your dream? What result do you want to achieve? Write down your aspirations or outcomes and consider whatever you write down as something that you will probably revise. If you wrote down lose weight, ask yourself, Is that really what I want? Maybe it is. Or maybe it's that you want to feel better in your clothes, or you want to control your diabetes, or you want to stand up paddleboard, but you feel like you're carrying too much weight. Getting clear on your aspiration allows you to design efficiently for what you really want. You might assume your aspiration is to be more mindful. But then when you think about this, you decide what you really want is to reduce stress in your life. And reducing stress will be easier than being more mindful. You could take a walk daily outside, play a musical instrument for 10 minutes, or cut back on watching TV news. In this step, revise your aspiration or outcome, clarify it so it taps into what really matters to you. Now, here's a note on starting with aspirations versus starting with outcomes. You can start with either one. However, I personally like aspirations as a starting point because they're more flexible and less intimidating than specific outcomes. Step two in behavior design. Explore behavior options. You get down to specifics in step two. You select one of your aspirations then you come up with a bunch of specific behaviors that can help you achieve your aspiration. Now, at this point, you're not making any decisions or commitments. You're exploring your options. The more behaviors you list, the better. You can tap into your creativity or maybe ask friends for their ideas. I created a way to help people explore behavior options. 
This tool is called the swarm of behaviors, or swarm of bees. Here's how it works. Write your aspiration inside a cloud-like shape that you would write on a piece of paper. You'll find a visual of this in the downloadable PDF, but you can draw one on your own. Outside of that cloud-like shape, put a number of boxes, 10 or 15 boxes, with arrows pointing toward the cloud shape. Here's how you use it. Let's say I'm guiding my friend Mark through this process, and he's clear about his big aspiration. He writes, reduce my stress inside the cloud. Next, I would say, Mark, if you could wave a magic wand and get yourself to do any behavior that would reduce your stress, what would it be? After Mark comes up with his first behavior, getting a massage each week, I'd say, great, what else? We don't stop, and we don't explore his idea in depth. Instead, Mark continues to write things down, and I continue to say, great, what else? When guiding people in this process, I like to remind them that for now, they have magical powers. They can get themselves to do any behavior. Move to Maui. Bring a dog to work. Get a management job that pays 30% more. It's important to explore in this step and be wildly optimistic. I call this method magic wanding. Even with a magic wand in hand, and my encouraging people to use those superpowers, sometimes people wish for practical behaviors, which is fine. Some wishes are behaviors you do one time, like download a meditation app. Some wishes are for new habits, like stretching for two minutes after every conference call. And some wishes are to stop doing a behavior, stop checking email after 7 p.m. To generate lots of behavior options, you can use the following categories during your own magic wanding sessions. What behaviors would you do one time? What new habits would you create? What habits would you stop? After you come up with each behavior wish, think to yourself, great, what else? And keep going. Eventually, you will have a swarm of behaviors that will range from wacky to logical to surprising, and that's a good thing. As you come up with behavior options, you'll see there are lots of ways to reach your aspiration. In a later step, you'll sort through these options and get realistic. But for now, you want to explore widely, and the fantasy of having magical powers will help you get there. The Swarm of Bees models helps you see that many different behaviors can take you to your aspiration. If you haven't gotten started, you can do that now. Write your chosen aspiration inside the cloud. Next, imagine you have a magic wand that can get you to do any behavior. What would you wish for? The Swarm of Behaviors tool, the worksheet I created, has boxes for 10 behaviors. But don't stop there. The more ideas, the more breadth, the more variety, the better results you will have in later steps of behavior design. If you're having a hard time coming up with fresh ideas, enlist other people. Ask a partner, your kids, even your social media friends, if they can suggest any behaviors that will help you achieve your aspiration. You could say or write, hey, if you could get me to do any behavior that would help me, blank, what would it be? 
you might be surprised at what you hear. And don't worry if some behavior wishes are totally unrealistic. <laughs> I'll show you how to select the best ones and how to make those a reality. For now, getting creative and coming up with new behaviors will help you have more fun and be more successful. Once you've exhausted the powers of your magic wand, look over your behavior wishes and try to make each one more specific. For example, if you've written down, play with my dog as a way to reduce stress, you could make that wish more specific by revising it to this. Play fetch with my dog each evening at home. After you revise your behavior wishes to be super specific, that's what I call crispy, move on to the next step in the behavior design process and get analytical and practical. Intuitive guessing versus skillful matching. Before I give you the next official step in behavior design, I want you to understand the larger context of designing for change. A major flaw in the way people typically approach change is how they decide what behavior to put into practice. How people decide to get from point A, the start, to point B, reaching their aspiration or outcome, well, this varies widely. Here are some of the most common but flawed ways to do this. Wrong way number one. Just guess. No methodology. Let's say you're riding the bus to work. While stuck in traffic, you look out the window and you see a guy on a bike whiz by. You think, now that is the way to commute. I should do that. Hmm, I used to bike. I love biking. Well, unfortunately, you were 12 the last time you rode a bike and your current commute is 15 miles, but you really want to do it in that moment. So you buy a bunch of gear at the bike shop. You put it all on the next day and as you step out the door, you discover it's cold and raining. You didn't buy gear for that. So you feel a flash of annoyance and disappointment and you walk to the bus stop instead. In the end, biking to work turns out to be a poor match for you. The problem with this approach of just guessing is it's haphazard. It's like playing roulette. Maybe you'll buy the right stuff that will help you to do the behavior. Maybe you won't. Maybe your behavior is too big a leap, or it's not. Maybe it's realistic for your life. Maybe it's not. With behavior design, you don't guess. Okay, next problem. Wrong way number two. Inspiration from the internet. Many of us watch talks online and get inspired. Lots of speakers have amazing stories and they do awesome things. Let's say you watch a video featuring a Buddhist monk who is a meditation master. He's speaking with wisdom and grace. He doesn't seem stressed out or even slightly grumpy. He's telling you about his blood pressure. It's awesome. And his resting heart rate. <laughs> even more awesome. And he presents the brain scans to prove it. You think, oh my gosh. I see the power of meditation. People have been doing this for thousands of years. At the end of the talk, he says that 30 minutes a day is all you need to substantially improve your life in these scientifically irrefutable ways. You are blown away. You have to do this. You're going to do this. That same day, you actually do sit for 30 minutes, as the monk suggested. You struggle to quiet your mind, but you feel pretty good until you get bored. The next day, you try 15 minutes. You feel okay for a while, 
but some days you don't do it, and on others you can't quiet your mind. You tried, and you failed, and you feel bad about it, and eventually you stop. Why didn't it work? Well, for starters, you're not a Buddhist monk, but it's mostly because this behavior was probably too hard for you, not to mention that you probably started with unrealistic expectations about meditation. The Buddhist monk meant well, but he was talking about what worked for him. Meditating might not work for you the way it works for him. The other thing to consider is that the videos you're watching, the articles you're reading, and the bloggers you're following may or may not be credible sources of information. While this approach to choosing behaviors is better than mere guessing, it's still risky because it wasn't chosen according to any criteria other than what excited you in that moment. Wrong way number three, choosing a behavior based on what worked for a friend. Advice from a friend or family member is the most well-meaning of all, but it's not the best way to match yourself with a new habit. While hot yoga may have changed your friend's life, does that mean it's the right practice for you? We all have friends who swear their new habit of getting up at 4.30 a.m. changed their lives and that we have to do it. I don't doubt that getting up super early changes people's lives, sometimes in good ways and sometimes not. But be cautious. You don't know if this habit will actually make your life better, especially if it means you get less sleep. So yes, you can try what worked for your friend, but don't beat yourself up if your friend's answer doesn't change you in the same way. All of these approaches involve guessing and chance, and that's not a good way to design for change in your life. Having systematic criteria for how to choose behaviors for yourself will make you effective in getting results. And the next step in behavior design will save you from guessing. Step three in behavior design is to match yourself with specific behaviors. Once you have a wide range of behavior options, thanks to magic wanding and your swarm of behaviors, shift gears and get practical. In this step, you will match yourself with specific behaviors, and there's no guessing in this systematic approach. This concept is important enough that I gave it a name. I call it behavior matching. And this is the most important step in behavior design. No matter what kind of change you want to make, matching yourself with the right behaviors is the key to changing your life for good. In behavior design, we have a name for the best matches. They're called golden behaviors. A golden behavior has three criteria. This behavior is effective in realizing your aspiration. In other words, it will have impact. Number two, you want to do the behavior. This is the motivation component of the behavior model. And number three, you can do the behavior. This is the ability component of the behavior model. There are a few good ways to behavior match. Getting help from a coach is a great way if you have someone in your life who can skillfully match you with golden behaviors. You might be working with a trainer, a doctor, a dietitian, or a person who either has the training or the intuition to know what will work for you. For example, a coach trained in tiny habits for weight loss 
can match you with the tiniest behaviors that will lead to the most weight loss. If you found an expert like this, consider yourself fortunate. For everyone else, I offer you a method I designed called focus mapping. With focus mapping, you'll use the swarm of behaviors you created earlier. Now, doing a focus map should take you less than 10 minutes, start to finish. At the end, you'll have two or three behaviors that rise to the top. Those are your golden behaviors, and that's what you design for while setting aside all the other options. A golden behavior can be a one-time action. Canceling your cable subscription is a task done one time that will probably lead to watching TV less. Other golden behaviors will be habits you repeat day after day, such as charging your phone in the kitchen instead of next to your bed. Focus mapping. Focus mapping is my favorite method in behavior design. I created this during 10 years of working on Stanford projects, changing my own life, and helping business leaders to design new products and services. Over the years, I've worked hard to improve the focus mapping method, and today, I believe it's the best way for matching yourself with golden behaviors. I've created a landscape for the focus mapping method. In the downloadable PDF, you can see this landscape. There are two dimensions, top to bottom and side to side. You can draw this out for yourself. Draw an arrow from top to bottom. This is the impact dimension. Draw an arrow from side to side. This is the feasibility dimension. You're eventually going to plot each behavior in your swarm on this landscape. First, I'll show you how it works using our buddy Mark, who is trying to reduce his stress. Mark writes each behavior from his swarm of behaviors on its own index card. Then he goes through the stack of behavior cards one by one, and there are two rounds. Round one. In the first round of focus mapping, Mark thinks only about the impact of the behavior how much it helps him to reduce his stress, and he doesn't consider the feasibility or practicality of each behavior, not in this round. For each behavior card, he asks himself, how effective is this behavior in helping me to reduce my stress? The first behavior Mark picks up is playing the guitar for 10 minutes every day. Now, this is straightforward. Mark loves the guitar, and he's always in a good mood even after a short strumming session. He knows this will have a big impact on him and his stress, so he places the card close to the top, near the high-impact end of the spectrum. The next behavior he picks up is leaving work 15 minutes early every day. Hmm. That seems like a good idea at first, but later he thinks that it might have the opposite effect, especially if he's on deadline. He puts that behavior toward the bottom, near the low-impact behaviors. Now, you continue in this way, card by card. If you're not sure about the impact a behavior will have, do your best and put it somewhere along this dimension, top to bottom, that seems right. You can revise later in the process if needed. If Mark had mistakenly put leaving work early as high-impact, no big deal. 
Worst case scenario, he leaves work early for a couple of days and realizes that rushing out the door is actually stressing him out more. Mark knows that experimentation is the name of the game, and he's loving his new guitar habit so he doesn't get too bummed that leaving work early didn't reduce his stress. Once you've plotted your potential new behaviors on the impact spectrum, top to bottom, it's time to look at those same behaviors through another lens. Round two. In this round, you focus on feasibility and practicality. You become the real you, not the fantasy version. In round two, you don't move cards up and down. You slide them side to side along the feasibility dimension. Mark eyes his guitar playing and work-leaving behaviors and asks himself, can I get myself to do this? Now, the phrasing of the question is important. It brings together both motivation and ability at the same time. With this one question, you are addressing two components of my behavior model. Can I get myself to do this behavior? Most people can answer the feasibility question pretty easily. When Mark asks himself, can I get myself to play the guitar every day? Well, the answer is obvious to him. Yes. However, when he asks himself, can I get myself to leave work early every day? He grimaces a little and he starts arguing with himself in his head. That's a sign that he can't get himself to do this. It's this simple for a lot of behaviors, but for others, it helps to know what's causing us to hem and haw. To do this, ask yourself, do I want to do this behavior? Motivation, in other words. You can't get yourself to do what you don't want to do, at least not reliably. You might do the behavior once or twice, but it's unlikely to become a habit. When we match ourselves with behaviors that we already want to do, not what we think we should do, there's no need to fuss around with motivational tricks or techniques later. We take the motivation monkey out of commission. Let's say you want to make eating ice cream a daily habit. <laughs> no problem, right? Why? Because there's no need to motivate yourself to dig into that chocolate chip ice cream after a long day of work. If you were focus mapping that behavior, you'd think, sure, I can get myself to do that behavior. And you would slide that card far to the right side of the chart. As you slide the card side to side, remember, there's no judgment here. Imagine yourself doing the behavior. Do you feel a little pop of dread? Or do you feel excited about doing the behavior? And there's plenty of room in between these feelings. But the important distinction here is between want and should. Behavior design recognizes this reality. A key to lasting change is matching yourself with behaviors you want to do. In your quest to exercise daily, for example, you'll find plenty of options. If streaming Beyonce and dancing for five minutes while you make breakfast is the exercise you want to do, then make dancing a daily habit and forget about the treadmill at the gym. One big difference in behavior design versus other approaches is that with my methods, you focus on habits you already have motivation to do. You don't pick a habit and later try to bolt on motivation. In behavior design, motivation is already embedded in the new habit. In other approaches, you'll struggle to maintain a habit 
you think you should do. And that doesn't work very well. Matching people with behaviors they want to do is so important for lasting change that I've given this concept special status in behavior design. I call it fog maxim number one. Help people do what they already want to do. And as an aside, as you apply this to your own life, help yourself do what you already want to do. This maxim has been a game changer for many of the professionals I've trained in behavior design. And this maxim can change the game for you when you help yourself do what you already want to do. I've designed the focus mapping method to adhere to this maxim. But there's more. The round two question, can I get myself to do this behavior, is also about ability. Perhaps you're motivated to eat fresh peaches every morning, <laughs> but if you live in Maine and there are no peaches to be found in the winter, eating a daily peach is not going to happen consistently. You don't have the ability to do this behavior reliably, and you would slide this card toward the left-hand side. As you sort your cards, imagine yourself doing the behavior in the context of your day-to-day -day life. Let's say your aspiration is to eat more fruit and the behavior you brainstormed is to put blueberries in your oatmeal. Don't imagine the fantasy you getting up early to fix oatmeal each day. Instead, think real you rolling out of bed 20 minutes before dashing out the door. Daily blueberries and oatmeal is probably not realistic. How about putting an apple in your purse instead? The purpose of a focus map is to match yourself with easy behaviors that you want to do and that are effective in getting you to your aspiration. When you start with the easiest, most motivating thing, you can ladder up naturally to bigger behaviors and perhaps eventually eating blueberries in your oatmeal. In behavior design, we match ourselves with new habits we can do even when we're at our most hurried, unmotivated, and beautifully imperfect. If you can imagine yourself doing the behavior on your hardest day of the week, it's probably a good match. It's probably a golden behavior. Finding your golden behaviors easily. When I first started researching and experimenting with behavior matching, I bought a lot of index cards. With practice, I learned to magic wand a swarm of behaviors very quickly. I'd set a timer for five minutes and see if I could write down 25 behaviors on the card. Well, that's easier than you think. Then I'd sort the behavior cards and plot them on a focus map on my kitchen counter. It was like solving puzzles. My behavior design process always started with an abstraction, either an aspiration or an outcome. About 20 minutes later, after taking steps in behavior design, I would discover specific behaviors that I could readily turn into a reality. 20 minutes and I was done. I still do this all the time. It's so fast and effective. I'm going to walk you through an early focus map that worked for me. It came at a time when I was pretty stressed by having to organize a big conference at Stanford, and I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't my usual optimistic self, and I was seriously worried about the conference being a disaster. But I felt that getting more sleep would help me be optimistic and get more done. 
So with that as my aspiration, I sat at my kitchen counter with my favorite black Sharpie and a stack of index cards. I started magic wanding behaviors that would help me get better sleep. Here are some examples. Put my phone on airplane mode after 7 p.m. Eat dinner an hour earlier. Turn on my white noise machine each night. Install blackout blinds. Purchase better bedding. Do a 15-minute wind-down ritual in the evening. Make a list of all my anxieties before bed. Put Millie, that's my dog, in her crate at night. This was about a quarter of the behaviors I came up with, but you get the idea. With a stack of potential behaviors in hand, each written on an index card, I started placing them on my focus map landscape according to impact. The ones I knew would have lots of impact were putting my phone on airplane mode, turning on the white noise machine at night, and installing blackout blinds. So I put those close to the high-impact end of the spectrum. I also knew that putting Millie in her crate would definitely make a difference because the older she gets, the more she wanders at night. Eating dinner earlier would mean that I was able to go to bed earlier, but I wasn't sure that I would be able to fall asleep earlier. So I put this behavior in the middle of the spectrum. Making a list of my anxieties seemed like it might work, but I wasn't sure. I then moved on to round two and asked myself if I could get myself to do each behavior. I knew right away that eating dinner earlier was too hard to do, so I put that all the way on the left. I can't get myself to do it. But installing blackout blinds was an easy one-time behavior because <laughs> I could hire someone to do it. I put that all the way to the right. Same with the white noise machine. It would be easy for me to switch on each night. Turning my phone to airplane mode would take multiple steps. Turn on the phone, swipe up, etc. So I edited my card. Put my phone on silent mode. <laughs> Easier. And then that card went way to the right, along with the card for putting Millie in her crate every night. When you complete a focus map, you'll have behaviors distributed all over the chart. You can see an example of this in the downloadable PDF. This whole process of focus mapping only took a few minutes, and suddenly I had my golden behaviors for better sleep. A one-time behavior, installing blackout shades, and three behaviors I could turn into habits, putting my phone on silent, turning on my white noise machine, and creating Millie. The last step in the focus mapping method is to select which behaviors you will design for, what's in and what's out. You will almost always select a handful of behaviors that are in the upper right corner. You design for these golden behaviors and you forget the rest. The behaviors in the upper right-hand corner will have high impact, and you can get yourself to do it. Those are your golden behaviors. When I looked at my focus map for better sleep and I saw my golden behaviors in the upper right-hand corner, what struck me was not the speed of my process, but how right it felt. For weeks, I'd been thinking about how I could get better sleep, and this problem seemed overwhelming. In the modern world, sleep is hard sometimes. But by moving from the aspiration to the practical, I suddenly had concrete, easy behaviors I could do. They weren't terribly creative or wildly inventive, but they were mine. I knew I could do them. Me, 
BJ in my real life. When I looked at my golden behaviors, I felt something like recognition. I thought, of course I can do that. And why didn't I think of that before? I'm not alone in reacting this way to the matching process. Whenever I do a focus mapping session with students or clients, there are plenty of aha moments. After completing my one-time behavior and locking in my new sleep habits, I saw a huge improvement in my sleep after a week or so. Before this, I had slept terribly most nights when I was worrying about the conference. I hated going to bed. It felt like gearing up for a battle. But I was able to change that. I got more sleep. I regained my optimism. And I completed what seemed like a bajillion tasks to make the conference at Stanford a success. I have my focus map and the behavior design process to think. Update. I have since stopped putting Millie in her crate at night. Imagining what it was like to be locked up in a crate made me feel guilty, and I don't like feeling that way, so I ended this habit, and that was the right thing to do. You should feel free to revise whatever new habit ends up not being what you wanted. If you're like most people, when you're done sorting your focus map, you'll look at the golden behaviors and feel optimistic and energized. What you want to do and what you can do will converge into what you most likely will do. And that's the most fertile ground for growing habits. In the tiny habits method, I teach people to think about their new habits as small seeds. If you plant a good seed in the right spot, it will grow without coaxing. Starting with behaviors that you can and want to do makes for a good seed. Choosing behaviors that set you up for success increases your confidence and mastery as you go, thus increasing your natural motivation to do bigger and bigger behaviors. But it all starts small and honest and specific. We should be dreamy about aspirations, but not about the behaviors that will get us there. Behaviors are grounded, concrete, they are the handholds and footholds that get you up the rock face. Your path to the top is your own, and you choose your behaviors according to the particular rock you are climbing. Matching yourself with the right behaviors is the most critical step in the behavior design process and an important place to return to when troubleshooting. To review, in behavior design, you first clarify your aspiration or outcome. That's step one. Step two is to generate a big set of potential behaviors, and you can use magic wanding for this. And step three is to match yourself with specific golden behaviors. You can use focus mapping for that. This is how you put behavior design into practice in your own life and it's also how you match yourself with the best habits for doing tiny habits. You can use behavior design at work to design a wellness program, recruit the best talent, and create habits for productivity. These methods I'm sharing are the most practical, powerful, and reliable way to succeed on your professional projects. The concepts can be applied broadly. Tiny habits for better meetings, tiny habits for working moms, tiny habits for effective teamwork, and many more. The next step in the process of behavior design is to make things as simple as possible. 
the kind of simplicity I'm talking about may surprise you. Everyone's heard about taking baby steps, but I realized years ago that no one was taking this approach quite far enough in the world of behavior change, so I did, and that created breakthroughs. In the next chapter, I'll help you see what tiny really means and how to make your golden behaviors a reality by starting intentionally, purposefully, and radically small. Here are the exercises at the end of this chapter. Tiny exercises to practice behavior design. In the first exercise, I'm going to define the aspiration for you. Get better sleep. In the second exercise, you'll come up with your own aspiration. Exercise number one, a shortcut for behavior matching. Step one, draw a cloud on a piece of paper. Step two, write the aspiration, get better sleep inside the cloud. Step three, come up with 10 or more behaviors that would lead you to your aspiration of getting better sleep. You can use magic wanding for this. Write each behavior outside the cloud with arrows pointing toward the cloud. Bam, you've now created your swarm of behaviors. Step four, put a star by four or five behaviors that you believe would be highly effective in reaching your aspiration. Step five, circle any effective behavior that you can easily get yourself to do. Be realistic. Step six, find the behaviors that have both a star and a circle. Those are the ones that will be highly effective and you can get yourself to do. Those are your golden behaviors. Step seven, design a way to make your golden behaviors a reality. Do your best with this step. I haven't yet explained how to systematically design a solution, so for now, use your intuition. In this first exercise, I didn't have you sort up and down and side to side. This was a shortcut for finding your golden behaviors through stars and circles. In exercise number two, I'll have you practice mapping things to the two-dimensional landscape. Exercise number two, focus mapping to find golden behaviors. Pick your own aspiration this time and use focus mapping, not stars and circles, to match yourself with golden behaviors. Step one, draw a cloud on a piece of paper. Step two, write your aspiration inside the cloud. If you can't think of anything, write, reduce my stress. Step three, come up with 10 or more behaviors that would lead to your aspiration. Again, you can use magic wanding for this. Write each behavior outside the cloud with arrows pointing toward the cloud. Step four, now write each of the 10 behaviors or more than 10 behaviors on a card, one behavior per card. This is the first step in focus mapping. Step five, sort the behavior cards up and down along the impact dimension. Don't think about feasibility at this point. Focus on the impact the behaviors would have. Step six, now slide the cards side to side along the feasibility dimension and be realistic. Can you really get yourself to do these behaviors? Step seven, look in the upper right-hand corner. Those are your golden behaviors. If there's nothing in this corner, go back to step three, back to magic wanding and explore more widely. 
Step eight, design a way to make your golden behaviors a reality in your life. For now, use your intuition. I'll share a systematic way to do this in a later chapter. Chapter 3. Ability. Easy does it. What's the difference between Yahoo and Google? Between Blogger and Twitter? Why does one innovation fade and another one take over the world? Talent? Vision? Money? <laughs> luck? All of those things and plenty more. But the biggest one is perhaps the most overlooked. Simplicity. When Mike Krieger and Kevin Systrom started talking about creating a new app in 2009, they began by examining the previous year's failure, a location-sharing app called Bourbon. They did a thorough digital autopsy, analyzing what not only went wrong, but also what went right. Inside the analytics of failure, they found a multi-billion-dollar seed, photo-sharing. Even though few people had liked the check-in part of Bourbon, the app would share your whereabouts in real time with your friends, they had loved the sharing pictures part of the app. So the partners decided they would create an app that allowed people to capitalize on the iPhone cameras conveniently stashed in their pockets. Photo sharing was the golden behavior for Systrom and Krieger. Their potential customers already wanted to do it. Sharing pictures with other people is fun, and everyone likes positive feedback. Another important golden behavior for the duo was allowing people to add filters to make their pictures of food and sunsets and puppies look much better. This would make users feel good about the pictures they were sharing, which encouraged them to do it more often. Noticed that Krieger and Seastrom nailed the motivation component by choosing a behavior that people already wanted to do. According to the behavior model, they were already in good shape. That alone might have brought them some success. But what they did next catapulted them into the pantheon of Silicon Valley demigods. They made their golden behaviors easy to do. Krieger was fresh out of one of my classes at Stanford. He knew how human behavior worked and how important it was to make things easy to do if you wanted people to do them. This was another place where Bourbon had fallen short. There were a lot of features that people didn't need or couldn't figure out how to use. This realization reinforced Krieger and Systrom's desire to make the new photo-sharing app simple. So that's what they did. When Instagram launched in 2010, it took only three clicks to post a photo. According to the original description in the App Store, Instagram was easy as pie, which is notable when you look at their early competition. Krieger and Systrom weren't the first to understand that people love photos and might want to share them. Their biggest competitors when they launched were Flickr, Facebook, and Hipstamatic. All three offered users great full-feature experiences, and Facebook and Flickr had the advantage of money and infrastructure. Instagram, on the other hand, was a free app built by a couple of dudes in a coffee shop. 
All you could do was take a picture, put a filter on it, and share it with people. That kind of simplicity was not, and still isn't, the norm. While all of Instagram's competitors had features that people wanted, none of them cracked the code on photo sharing. Less than 18 months after the app's launch, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. At the time, the huge social network was openly mocked for overpaying. <laughs> Today, Instagram's estimated value is more than $100 billion. So why was Instagram's simple approach so successful? Why doesn't every app developer do that? It seems pretty obvious, right? Well, not exactly. Most people operate under the assumption that they've got to go big or go home. They think that in order to kick a bad habit, de-stress, or make a pile of money, they've got to do something radical. Go cold turkey, sell their house and move to the beach, put all their chips on the table. Go all in. Those who take these extreme measures and succeed are lionized. Now, if you've ever watched a special about an Olympic athlete who's been training 12 hours a day since she was three, or a successful business person who sold everything and moved to Italy,